Thanks for the drink, Katie. Hey, anytime, Patrick. My drink is your drink, baby. If it's Sunday, it's the main course. On Heritage Radio Network. I can't believe Meet the Press took that line from us. I know. Well, you know. Back in 1960. It's very hard for them to stay original. It's like... <laughs> so here we are. We're in the back of Roberta's Pizza. It's uh, a rainy day in Bushwick at 261 Moore Street. We are engineered by uh, Nat Wiener, who I just want to give a little message to. I can't hear Katie through the uh, earphones. Uh-oh. I can hear me through the really? earphones. Really? Yeah. Can you hear me through the earphones? Yeah. And um, and we are produced by Jack Inslee today. And our sponsor, Patrick, would you care to read our sponsorship tag? Yeah, absolutely. But uh, hey, Nat, can you hear this? Can they hear me? Oh, yeah. We got you. Yeah, okay. Should I turn the volume up here or something? Yeah. You might have gotten the famous one-eared headphones. Ah, uh, that's, that's in fact right it is. The one-eared uh-huh. headphones. Now I understand. Oh, that's fine. No, it's a one-eared he- headphone. So we're sponsored today by uh, White Oak Pastures. White Oak Pastures cattle are raised in a manner that has stood the test of time. It begins with southern sunshine, unpolluted country air, and terrific coastal soil. The cattle are allowed to roam the pastures and graze freely on sweet native grasses all their lives. Um, and actually, very interestingly, White Oak Pastures has an abattoir on their premises. So Peter and I so were talking earlier about stress. vertically integrated. 100%. White Oak Pastures all-natural gas-fed beef has been available in all the Whole food stores in the mid-Atlantic states. We hope that you will support their program through your purchase of their beef through one of these Whole food stores. For more information, go to whiteoakpastures.com. So, okay. Katie, I haven't seen you last week. Uh, well, we last week you were on the road again. You, you were Sullivan a rambling County. dude, man. You were up in Sullivan County. How's the cheese business? Tell me what happened, because you guys did a little ch- tour of the cheese biz up there. Um, you t- yeah. checked in with a bunch of different farmers. We did. We visited about, I think, six dairy farms. And tell us about How the cheese. How was that show? Was it good, like us calling it? I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was great. I thought it was really Had interesting. Had a panel of about four people. Yeah, it was a little hard to figure out who was doing talking what. But um, yeah, I thought, I thought it worked out well because we got a lot of different uh, perspectives on, on the business uh, of um, artisanal product and... Um, you know, small to medium-sized farms, which well, you don't hear that much about. Yeah, you don't hear On this that. network, you do, but nowhere else. <laughs> I know. Uh, you do hear it a lot. Well, we had, uh, basically, you know, there's no secrets about the fact that we have to help Sullivan County farmers. It's a great dairy area because it's like rolling hills and this and that. Dairy is what it should be doing. There are about 25 dairy farmers still left in Sullivan County. Mm-hmm. Um, they produce, you know, they have herds of about 30 or 40 to 80 cows. Pretty per small. Farm. Yeah, pretty small. In fact, if you were to make a cheese out of it, it would be about 7,000. I mean, make cheese out of all the accumulated milk from that entire re- region. Yeah. Accumulated. It would be 7,000 pounds a week. Not wow. that much. That's not a lot. I think NYU alone probably goes through 5,000 pounds of cheese. Fairway Market probably goes. Oh, I would think so, yeah. The question is what type of cheese to make. Um, so anyway, this whole Sullivan County, uh, let me first say, Ann and I were amazed at how down and out a lot of these farmers were. Getting paid commodity price for milk, $17 per hundred weight. So um, basically, Ann Saxelby built this program of paying them $25 a pound per hundred weight. Now, how did she do that? Well, she said, let's start with that, because that's a fair price for farmers that are within an hour's drive of the most populated, richest city in the history of the world. Yeah. 
They should not be getting paid commodity pricing, which is built for huge lots in Kansas and Missouri sure. with hundreds yeah. of thousands of cows. So paying $25 per hundred weight could make probably a 7 to $8 a pound simple Sullivan County made cheese. An everyday slicing cheese that doesn't compete with the high-end farmstead cheeses, but that competes with the Kraft Single. Beautiful. I love yeah. that. So it's kind of an exciting thing. And we're talking to Michael Hurwitz about it. We're talking oh, to... Oh, great. I mean, the key is it can't be a bad cheese. Yeah, it's got to be a cheese that, that everybody likes, that kids like. So guess which one she like? went with. Tell of me. all the world's cheeses, what did Anne think is the most like, the most accessible to the most variety of people? Liederkranz. <laughs> Good guess. <laughs> you know they're manufacturing that again. Oh, really? I have good news for you. But yeah, okay, keep going. I'm sorry. It's a Gouda. Oh, that makes sense. You it know. melts well. It's kind of mild and nutty. Yeah, lovely. And also that area is also responsible for Holstein cows, which have like kind of populated the whole world too. Yeah, yeah. Something about And that, that. makes sense with our, our early Dutch heritage too. I like that. Yeah. I like I like that. New Amsterdam market. Beautiful return to our, yeah. Oh, geez, is that my phone? Absolutely. Sorry, you guys. So um, anyway, well, back to this breaking news. We're about to have Peter Kaminsky on, who's I'm, a kind of you know mentor of mine. Uh, he's been a kind of shepherd of, of mine, like went back in the slow food days, and we've right? always kept in touch. Yeah, he was a, a great that. person, you know, inspiring, and he's been in the business um, for you know a few years. And just a few. And, no, but nowhere it's near someone as long to look as I up have. to. Someone to look up to for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, before we go to that, you know, there's this uh, shale digging for gas. I know all about that. Yes, it's called the Marcellus shale plant, or yes, the Marcellus. And they have a uh, a uh, technique called fracking, um, uh-huh. where they break the stone and extract the natural gas from it. It's actually a very, very big deal. It's primarily Pennsylvania, but there's some up in upstate New York, and it goes down, I think, quite a ways mm-hmm. south towards the the Mid Atlantic regions. Um, yeah, it's 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 a huge deal. There's a lot of money going into it because um, natural gas is our next big energy mm-hmm. push in this country. Instead of going for wind and solar, we're going to spend a lot of money uh, polluting the environment even further by creating on you know, farms by no fracking. Less. Yeah, and the thing that's worse? really painful is that um, it's you know for farmers. I think we touched on this last week. It's a lot. Uh, you know, for them, it's a lot better economically to just sell out to the oil company because they will pay the big bucks. And I'm here to tell you as a, on a personal level that they will pay big bucks for this um, because, as it turns out, I'm, I'm also extracting natural gas, although not from that particular source, but from Texas. And it's, it's worth a lot of money. Well, farmers are not in it to be rich, first of all. As but long they will as they be rich if they sell out to these, um, to these oil companies. I think they would say still no to the oil companies if know. they were making a decent wage on their food. Maybe. They just can't be getting paid commodity. Of course, gas drilling becomes attractive to their fifth Absolutely. generation lot. Oh, by the way, it's going to have a big impact on our water on the reservoirs in New yeah. York, in New York State, if they do do this. And Governor Patterson is way behind this. He's loving it. He's oh, really? loving this. This yeah. is a good thing. He should so, make uh, a actually, lot of... Actually, people should be writing in to the governor and saying no, no, no to he fracking. some good grades and helping the environment like that would be great. <laughs> yeah, he's, really, he's going to really win some points. On his way out of office, he's going to sign our lives away here. And the uh, last piece of news that I have um, is the Pigford settlement's about to, to happen. Where um, do you know about that? It's I don't a long-standing pattern of discrimination at the U.S. Department of Agriculture against oh, African against African American farmers. I read about that recently. Yeah, and support. So they could be getting billions. Uh, I think one point five billion dollars. Yeah. that would go in fifty thousand dollar lots or possibly two hundred fifty thousand dollar lots. Well, that should help things out a little bit. Yeah, I mean a little bit of reparations for sort discrimination of, sort and of racism. Kinda. Yeah, kind yeah. Of. 
So what else? What's been on your mind? Uh, well, what's really on my mind and what's really preoccupying me now is the uh, launch of the New York City Food Film Festival. This is the fourth year of this. Do you guys know about this? This is a festival. Uh, it was put together by uh, George Motes, who wrote, who first of all created the documentary Hamburger America and then wrote a companion volume to go with it. Mm. And uh, a friend of his, Harry Hawk, who's a chef and used to be the chef at Water Taxi Beach and at Schnack. And they came up with this idea like uh, three and a half years ago. This will be our f- the fourth season for it. And um, they what they do is collect films from really all over the world. Um, and now they get hundreds and hundreds of submissions. It's like a really big deal. Mm. <laughs> I mean, everybody who's ever made a documentary about their favorite food sends it now to George to screen for this um, festival. So we're, we're just getting that off the ground in terms of, um, you know, putting together all the you know materials that you send out to the press and sending uh-huh. things to the press and talking about what we're going to do and how we're going to do it and it's it's they've got some great stuff going on and the first thing that we've announced to the press um so far is the biggest food truck drive-in in other words huh. they're going to be like 40 some odd food trucks that all convene in one space underneath the Brooklyn Bridge and at the same cool. time as you can walk around and buy from any food truck you want you're going to be watching films about food trucks <gasps> Um, about film trucks including some of the I mean about food trucks including some of the ones that are going to be there at the Hmm. festival so that's that's one yeah very cool and then we're going to have the kickoff evening is a um I'm probably breaking news. I shouldn't, but I'm going to anyway. It's an oyster Sorry, no shuck and suck. Yeah, so we're going to have four films about oystermen. We're going to have a bunch of these same oystermen come to talk about their their work and their films. And uh, people are going to be able to um, shuck and suck down as many oysters <laughs> as they suck. possibly can. Um, there is a fee for that one, but there's no fee for the, for the food truck drive-in. So these are just a couple of the really incredible events that are lining up over this weekend. It's like a five-day you know, series of events. It's all over Manhattan and Brooklyn, and mm-hmm. I think there's even one event in Queens. And cool. So that's, that's been my big preoccupation this week is, is working on that. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. We'll, well have them on the show. We should um, maybe take a break and uh, come back and talk with... Uh, uh, with Peter Kaminsky. Yeah, I real. mean, the, and, you know, an hour is... At, well, you can stay as long as you want, Peter. I hope you will. back this is the main course with patrick martins and katie kiefer as your hosts we are broadcasting from the back of roberta's pizza at 261 moore street this is part of the heritage radio network programming and today we're sponsored by white oak pastures pastures.com 
Com. And our guest uh, today in studio is uh, Peter Kaminsky, a really just a personal, um, you know, frisson of excitement about meeting one of my favorite food authors. <laughs> um, so we have you have new book in works, you have award festivals in works, you have like, it just seems like you're kind of all over the place. Uh, you're a busy bee. I'm a busy bee. I'm a busy bee. Yeah, it's good. Your um your last book, which somebody sent me because I actually needed a quote from Francis Malman, the the Argentinian, in case you don't know folks. Um it's called Seven Fires. The Argentine Way to Grill. Yeah. And it's a wonderful book. I loved it. And I loved the um writing and I loved the photo you guys photographed together really well. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's a great book, and um, so that was your most recent public pu- uh, published piece. That's right. And then, what was the seven fires component to that? Well, uh, there are seven different ways of cooking with fire, and I ain't going to remember all of them now. But there's what's called parilla, which is what you think of as a barbecue grate mm-hmm. over stuff. There's uh, horno de barro, which is a wood oven, right. as is in Roberta's here, which reminds me so much of a. Patagonian joint, you know, that you're liable to walk into. Uh, there's Rescoldo, cooking in the embers and ashes, which is a favorite of the gaucho. Alabara, which is wooden skewers and steaks, which is the way the uh, uh, Guarani Indians cook in Uruguay. Then a thing called the Infernillo, which Francis adapted from the Incas. Um, and there are still many, many Incas. This isn't like some phony, uh, you know, ancient grain label on. Right, a new pasta. Um, <laughs> they they uh, they would make a fire under some rocks that were on support. They would put what they were cooking on top of a flat rock, and they would put four rocks in the corners to put another flat rock on top, and they make a fire on top. So it's mm. a fire sandwich. Wow. wow. Uh, caldero, which is a big iron cauldron, um, and we also cooked uh, a whole cow, which is a favorite recipe. I. Uh, I ever wrote, which was uh, here, here. Can I t- recite the entire recipe? I wish you would. I have time. Okay, it's one medium cow, about fourteen hundred <laughs> pounds butterflied, uh, <laughs> salt to taste, and two pickup trucks, uh, lo- two pickup truck loads full, you know, of hardwood. Yeah, <laughs> and cook for fourteen hours. Is that all? That's all. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, the fourteen hours needs your attention. Yeah. I guess that does need your attention. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things that I read when I was a little girl, I was a great fan of the writer um, Gerald Durrell, mm-hmm. Lawrence Durrell's uh, brother. And, he, mm-hmm. you know, he was a naturalist mm-hmm. and, a, and a zoologist. And he wrote a wonderful book about Patagonia. And he describes exactly that experience of being out in the pampas with the gauchos and having them prepare a cow. La vaca entera. See, And, you know, sort of like being absolutely sort of basically kind of over, you know, stoned on meat, you know, <laughs> lean forward and slice off a little blackened sliver and <laughs> pop it in your mouth, you know, swish it around in the chimichurri or whatever. And you awesome. know, it just went on and on. It was like this, you know, 24 hour feast that he experienced. And I thought that, I mean, at the age of like, I don't know, maybe 11 or 12 when I read that book, I just thought, wow. Yeah, it's a serious food I choice. <laughs> so what what is the minimum amount of space that someone needs to carry out the recipe or are there recipes in this book there must be right? oh yeah there's 125 recipes oh, yeah. and the recipes are excellent so the then way. um what is the minimum is amount of space buying. required for someone like uh, i think of people in new york city i mean could they there you can do probably 40 percent of the recipes uh 
on your home uh, in your home oven okay. or stovetop. Yeah. I left out one of the ways of cooking, which they called chapa, and you, we would call plancha if we spoke any Spanish. But that's, you know, a griddle or a yeah. skillet on top of fire. Well, back to this fire thing. I'm happy you finished, uh, brought us back to that. Um, is is it a taste difference, or do certain types of meats require different uh, of the seven options? Um, I mean, like, which option do you choose for which occasion? Or is it just preference? Yeah, yeah. Or convenience, yeah. I guess. Or right? goat versus cow versus winter it's versus preference summer. versus convenience. And in every case, in every case in the book, the ingredient itself is agnostic as to if the fire's coming from wood or charcoal or from sitting on cast iron. Hmm. And if, even if the heat source is uh, wood or charcoal or gas, briquettes, um, the meat doesn't know what's cooking it. You will get absolutely some wood infusion. Yeah, you know, yeah. I would think it would be really nice to cook over hardwood because you would acquire those flavors. I mean, they do sell. You know, I mean, they sell hardwoods. You know, like cooked or somebody will promote their products as you know cooked over applewood or cooked over hickory or whatever it is. So but I think I think that's up to a, a point. You know, it's just up to a point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By and large. You can cook over any heat source. What you want to do, what's Francis's goal in most cases, is to get that little crust on the outside of what you're cooking. Yeah. And then to have the heat, depending on the size of, if, if it's meat, but there's probably half vegetables in this book too, and that's quite interesting. Uh, it does do a lot of Is to have yeah. uh, your meat cook evenly throughout. Mm-hmm. So an Argentine steak, a, a great perfect Argentine steak, has got two nice crusts, one on top, one on bottom. And then the color of the meat, it should be wall to wall about the same. Huh. It's not the way a French chef would do it, which is, you know, black on Red the outside, in the blue middle. in the middle. Yeah, yeah. I used that quote, actually, from his book when I was writing this article about steaks for food arts um, recently, which was exactly that, that you want the color to be uniform. And there's there are, you know, new techniques to try to achieve that. I thought his... You know, I liked the idea of the crust on the outside. I mean, there's a well, lot of sort of sous vide or, you know, like you brown it and then you cook it really, really slow or what, you know. Anyway. And I'm happy to say many people have cooked it, and including Harold McGee wrote an extensive review for oh, this really? uh, piglet contest that Amanda Hesser had, and it came out right. So, Yay. you know. It's always nice when that happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's, um, that, and who publishes that book? Artisan. Artisan Press. So it's a very beautiful book. So let's uh, really jump nice to another uh, great layout. And we should come back to whatever we want to, but I, there's so much to cover in, in, in so little time. Um, talk about it since it's a current event, this uh, Gershwin Prize uh, for Paul McCartney. Oh, well, sort of to keep food on the table, I also produced some television shows for okay. a few years. One is the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor at the Kennedy Center, which went to Bill Cosby last year. That's on PBS. He's very funny. Very funny. I mean, remember those first uh, stand-ups? I mean, not first, because I think he was back on, like, Johnny Carson back in Black and White days, but when he had his one-man shows, um, you know, uh, one-man shows where he would sit and talk about, like, Oh, his yeah. grandmother throwing a shoe at him or something like that. Or oh, I, I forget. wonderful. Yeah, so, so classically funny. And the beginning years of the Cosby show, I mean, what American kid didn't think that was the funniest show, you know, ever on air? He's very, he's very uh, Mark Twainish. Bill is, you know, he he finds a, a thing in the normal interchange of families and mm-hmm. everyday people, that's quite universal. Uh, 
He does. He finds the universality in humor, and I think that's probably the secret to his success. By Mark Twain-ish? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Twain takes, no matter how high and mighty his characters might be or might not be, they always get down to a a level of pettiness that uh, (laughs) we recognize in everybody we know, including ourselves. That's right. That is awesome. And so so out of the Twain Prize grew the Gershwin Prize for popular song. Mm Mm-hmm. Which maybe you saw last year, we did Stevie Wonder at the White House, which was a trip, you know, like three weeks into the new administration. Mm-hmm. And wow. so next month, we're going to do uh, uh, the same. Uh, the library will give the prize, and the president and first lady will host the show at the White House uh, for Paul McCartney. So it's going to be very hard to get over myself after a couple of days of that. So, how many people do you get to bring? <laughs> but I'm sure Melinda. I mean, Oh, she's great. We'll be able to do my wife Melinda's drag my, you down a peg or by two. By my right? side, agreeing. <laughs> do you guys get to go and we, spend the night at the White House or something? Uh, we, we get to spend till ten thirty, which time you have to stop. You know, in rehearsal, have to stop all the music because it's a home. How does it work? Do the Obamas leave and then everyone else leaves, or you know, how does that work? Like, if they're all at an event in the White House, well, is there a the, ceremony to it, departing? Well, it's in the East Room, and everybody's seated. And then uh, the president and first lady are announced, and they enter, and you know, there's applause. They sit, and the music starts. Mm-hmm. And they're a great audience. They really are. Uh, they just dig the music. And it always like, seems so weird to see like George Bush, you know, Jr. like at like the Kennedy Center honors for like Robin Williams or something. You know, like it always seemed like a disconnect. The Obamas seem like they would be a more like the Clintons engaged group with the arts. It's not to say that Bush is a bad person, but he didn't seem to fund the yes, Hollywood. He is. He is. No, I mean, it's just, it's just nice to have a good you audience. Know, is I, what think, I'm saying. I, I see the Kennedy Center honor. I see them up there. I'm why happy. Why are we being nice? Like he, was he got pun- his, his partying out at an earlier age. Yeah, he got his yeah. partying out. But like punching it in with Bruce Springsteen, Barack and Bruce Springsteen. Like, that's cool. Oh, yeah. You know? Well, Barack is a lot cooler. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry. Anyway, so that's my, that's my life. I well, think it sounds pretty cool. I mean, so, but you're working on a new book, and you were talking about that earlier before we started the yeah, show. Let's hear a well, little bit about that called, if you feel like talking about it, that is. Culinary Intelligence, uh, you know, an ed- a hedonist guide to healthy eating, because I'm not a guilt guy, and I love food. Uh, but I also got rejected for life insurance a couple of years ago. and I was No told, way. Yeah. And I was told that I had to lose weight. Uh, you know, I had the... Uh, approaching type 2 diabetes which the entire country seems to have and uh, I just started you know well I'd always exercised but I continued that more heavily Uh, and I started to to eat differently Um, basically cut out the white stuff you know refined sugar and and white flour yeah Um, and that doesn't include all pastas because semolina is semi-milled it's not you know white flour took me a long time for that linguistic light bulb to go off and I'm as a possible ever I'm happy and you have to cut down on you know on the drinking so one or two glasses of wine a day and then tops. yeah yeah that's it and then uh that's depressing uh oh you oh, Katie has had a bottle and a half since yeah. the show started yeah it's so. like amazing that she's <laughs> she's doing this reclining the entire show <laughs> uh, in fuzzy slippers smoking a pack of cools that's right <laughs> So, um, so you know, cut down on the booze, and and, and then desserts. Um, uh, just you know, don't don't have them. And if you're in a restaurant, don't order them. And if they're ordered, only eat half of them. 
And is cheese okay? Cheese is okay. You know, you can have some cheese. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't have... You can't eat, you can't eat you pounds know, of cheese. A gigantic pizza, you know, followed by a milkshake. Now, let me ask, um, what um, do you give any recommendations towards what an ideal diet is for someone, like, in their 20s and 30s? Like, do you still recommend cut out white stuff, only two glasses of wine? Or, you know, like, what has you, your diet been? Like, how many times would you have meat in a week or fish? Like, I don't think meat is an issue. And I think fish is good. I don't think you meet, need big slabs of meat at every meal. But I yeah, certainly am not giving up steak. But I think it's, you know, the added butter. I think it's lot, lots of potatoes. You know, what is it? 33% of the vegetables, according to Marion Nessel, consumed in the United States are potato chips, French fried potatoes, and iceberg lettuce. Mm. So We're I mean, very excited. We're going to have Marion Nessel have Marianne on, on, I think, on June, June 27th. Yes. Yeah. My biggest piece of advice, and, you know, there will be recipes in the book, too, but it sort of gets into what you know you guys stand for is that you must get the best fully flavored ingredients that you can, mm-hmm. and that probably means not eating tomatoes when they're not in season. Mm-hmm. You know, not eating peaches that taste like dish towels. You know, because there's a loss in nutrients, right, when you transport and all that's true. But let's take it from a hedonist point of view, mm-hmm. which <laughs> is if you have full flavored ingredients. Mm-hmm. And then if you cook carefully, and I think anyone who wants to eat well, you know, and healthily needs to cook some. If not mm-hmm. every night, you just got to understand how Yes, Patrick food. and I have a deep disagreement over this. I disagree. Patrick does not think you need to learn how to cook. Well, I just think that that's not a winning cooking. argument. That's like saying Brazil, you know, Brazil needs to get its population educated. I mean, I do think that that's true, but it's so many hundreds of years away. And then mainly the biggest problem lies in the inner cities with an obesity epidemic. You know, trying to convince those people to cook kale on the... I would much rather there be more options like a Mamafuku sambar that sells well, a four dollar organic pork belly sandwich but that competes with the mcdonald's i think it's the realm of business that needs to have more healthy offerings but heated ready to go nutritious here's the kicker though patrick Uh, and uh, and i guess we do disagree because i think it's really an important way to understand food and i think as i said i think if you cook one meal for real Mm-hmm. A week, if that's a Saturday or Sunday meal, you're just going to know and understand a lot more about what this food thing Absolutely. is. Absolutely, well, definitely. Once but the major major point I was making is about flavor. Mm-hmm. If the ingredients are good and you know how to, you know, maximize flavor uh, through through cooking, then I think you're going to achieve satisfaction. Because what you want is satisfaction out of you know out of eating. Yeah. And if you don't get satisfaction from flavorful ingredients, well prepared. You are going to default to sugar, salt, and fat. Yeah, I was just going to say, you're just and you're going to eat a lot that. more. And yeah. Katie, the, I love it, I love what uh, Peter's saying because it's about this elitist argument. You know, if something is fully flavored, you eat less of it. Which you know, I make the point that artisanal cheese at eighteen dollars a pound, twenty dollars a pound, is not that expensive because you only yeah. eat. Uh, five ounces of it and you've gotten such a thing or a delicious beet that's you know so i don't really think uh, slow food is more expensive than fast on a strict economic level a little bit yes but anyway that kind of supports the argument full flavor equals you know sati- pay less sati- sati- in a way sati- yeah how do you say that with satiety satiety that's the word like in high high satiety yeah we live in a democratic <laughs> satiety you're a real sophisticate <laughs> You know, can I tell a little story about 
uh, Melinda and I, I, I was fishing out in, in Montana. I love to fish. And uh, it was getting on the 4th of July, and Melinda's family is from Rockford, Illinois. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we decided to drive from Bozeman, Montana to Rockford. Be- uh, end of June, beginning of July, great time of year. It's most, you know, there's wildflowers for 1,500 miles on the prairies and the plains mm-hmm. and the mountains. And as any of you who have ever been in Montana know, Osco Drugs, which is around in certain places, sells great wine, a really good wine. So we bought 18 bottles of great wine and uh, went about 1,200 miles, you know, before we had a good meal. Because it's so hard to eat on the road in America. It's just... It is. That's, you know, worth a lot of consideration. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we ended up at uh, uh, Paul Willis's farm. In, uh, in in Thornton, Iowa, Paul, Paul Willis is the other half. He's the pork half of Nyman Ranch. Yep, mm-hmm. and a good friend of mine. Great. And they guy. were having a great all-American, you know, Fourth of July picnic. The red barn, the wildflowers, it, you know, looked out out of uh, Norman Rockwell, and Phyllis Willis, uh, the rhyming wife of yes. Paul Willis. Did he like? Ha- did he put out an ad for her? <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> uh, made us. Some boiled beets. Now, there are a few times in my life when someone's saying, I'm going to make you some boiled beets, like, really excited me. And that didn't either. But then she served us to them, fresh out of the ground, mm. you know, these vegetables at the peak of their flavor with sweetness, with tartness, with just, you know, yumminess. And, uh, you know, those are beets I'll remember for the rest of my life. That's so great. if you can do that with a beet... Imagine what the rest of uh, the produce... Yeah, and the markets are full of beautiful beets now, too. I mean, there are all these different varieties that are coming into farmer's markets that make beets ever more enticing than they used to, you know, out of the jar, out of the can, which is how I remember them when we were kids, right? I mean, whoever had fresh beets. Well, Peter is a very uh, smart guy, so not only did he, you know, does he bring up these issues, but then he also tries to uncover new words within the English language to describe these foods once, the, you know, they are liked, um, you know, and they're gastronomic, um, you know, words that really, I, I personally think the English language doesn't seem to have many of them, you know, or at least not as many as when I was in Italy, when they would have, you know, 30 ways to describe the brat cheese or something, you know, depending on the season. So I know you uh, co-wrote The Elements of Taste with great Chef Greg Kuntz, and um, I wanted to, you to speak a little bit about new vocabulary uh, that you uncovered in that book. Yeah, well, this was, uh, at, at the same time when we did that book about 15 years ago yeah. or so, I was writing the Underground Gourmet <clears throat> for New York Magazine and a lot of other sort of higher gastronomy stories. But you have to describe food and go pick up a food review. The best food writers in the world, you know, yeah, it's woodsy, it's smoky, it's earthy, it's pungent. There's just a it's few delicious, yeah, a <laughs> few general descriptor right. words that don't tell you a lot. Where and I know from working with Gray and then many other chefs since. Mm-hmm. They build their recipes, they compose them in their head the way, you know, uh, musical artists compose songs. And they put tastes and flavors and textures together. So how, how do we describe that process? Because that's, that's really what cooking invention is about. Mm-hmm. So really what we did is we said, look, wine writers, we feel, have like overdone it because they drown you in sort of evocative words that just often make you feel inferior or, or clue, clueless. Yeah. 
But nonetheless, the idea of analyzing taste and what happens when you first bite into something and then as the flavors mix in your mouth and then as you breathe out and then what remains on your tongue, that's how every bite of every meal you've ever taken is experienced. One taste at a time and everyone's a little short story. So literally having no vocabulary uh, and not for want of looking in libraries, we just sat down and everything we cooked in that book and with whomever we shared the meal, we just say, okay, what's happening in your mouth now? And so like your mouth would get pushed, for instance? Well, there are. we ended up with 26 basic tastes. Ooh, this is interesting. And then we invited Dana Cowan, the editor of Food & Wine, who's mm-hmm. always been a big supporter of, of, of my work, uh, spent a couple of days with us. And she said, as a good editor would, too much, you're going to confuse people. So, so give us some of the highlights. Cut it down to 14. Fast. Oh, 14. So I, w- I like 26, one for every letter of the well, alphabet. Well, there is, and I can... Did you do that? Did it, it, no, it, or maybe them? it wasn't 26, but it was 22. Maybe. Okay. Or maybe it was 88 for piano. No, it was, it, was, <laughs> it, was, it was the low 20s. But we found that there were, boy, now I have to remember my own theory, but there are flavors, basic flavors that will elevate or push other flavor components forward in a meal so like a relish salt will do that okay you know something salted and not salted acid it will just lift all the other flavors Mm -hmm. we one we call tangy which is yeah or you call it acidic but acid doesn't sound as friendly you know Mm -hmm. in a a cookbook (laughs) uh but those were those were pull flavors you know push flavors out of things uh salty uh uh, um, picante, we called it, because hot can have two meanings. But <clears throat> I found this with food and wine once. I did a, a recipe about a, a Cajun fish stew with these you know, old swamp rats. And the only difference between their stew and the one that where my grandmother just you know, assassinated the taste of a flounder was they added, <laughs> they added cayenne pepper to it. And food and wine went nuts for it and just lifted all the other flavors Mm -hmm. so there's ones that push them forward there's Uh, some that obliterate others right like my mom always says melon in a fruit salad kills the taste of all the other fruits well those those are just can uh, combinations i see in fact not to get to theoretical i meant to say that um uh, tangy actually doesn't push things forward it tends to pull flavor elements out Mm -hmm. uh you get things we called floral herbal which are only experienced as, you know, aromas in the nose. Mm-hmm. But they have a tremendous affinity, often for sweetness. So basil, uh, anise, um, uh, uh, um, rosemary, I was going to say the Spanish word, thyme. It, the, in, in your, you know, olfactory, you know, processes and cavities and stuff, if you've got something in your mouth, they'll have a tendency to pull some savory and some, uh, or to accent some savory things. Onions, when you cook onions, that will have that same effect. It'll, you'll experience it in your nose as pulling out sweet elements. Yeah. And as for, as for stopping flavors, you were saying, Katrina, yeah. <clears throat> bitter and Pepper. sharp, bitter and sharp do that. Uh-huh. They, you know, which is why I think beer works so well with food or a tannic red wine. If you have something overwhelming in your mouth or a gigantic, you know, oxtail ragu, by the second bite, your poor palate, you know, says, I don't know, throw more in here if you want, but I don't know. I ain't going to taste it anymore. 
But if you, it's true. If you, have, I don't like braised foods for that shanks and stuff like that. No it's way. Too I love much. braised foods. I rather you have my favorite cooking technique. Things throughout. Really? Yeah, a, a lot, a little of a lot of things I like. Well, you need to try having a sip of wine in between bites. It's a, it's a great because thing. Because then it gets you more. But the thing is, I guess I'm just railing against these massive portions, you know, which has been written about before. Not as interesting anymore, you know, to have 45 bites of skirt steak. Even though I love skirt steak, and there's yeah. sometimes I want it. Hamburger is an exception. Like, that's still so delicious to me. But, you know, a lot, a lot. By the 20th bite, it's just not interesting. It's like your palate's dulled, in a way. You know, one other thing, you know, we're talking about the flavor and taste experience, is texture. When you talk about taste, you have to talk about texture. Because the first thing your mouth seeks out is texture. And until it decides what the texture of something is, it won't let your brain decide how things taste. Uh-huh. Which is why when you put meat in your mouth, it's your, your, your teeth have to go through that meat, meet that little resistance, and then you breathe out through your nose, and that's when you decide what it mm. tastes like. Very interesting. If something has crunch on it, yeah. you first experience the crunch. And then you decide how things taste. Like it almost like it categorizes it for you and takes it down a certain path that th- then you attribute. I, I think so. Very interesting. Although the Onion just came out with an article that they now have perforated beef. So um, I know that. <laughs> so you, you know the Onion. Tear yeah, it you off. Just tear yeah. it off in a you little tear bite. Tear off size. your chunks. We've they been going on forever. We should it. take a. Uh, we should take, take a break. A break. So Jack it's twelve forty yeah. actually, and um, we'll we're with Peter Kaminsky, sponsored by White Oak Pastures. This is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. We are your hosts, Katie Kiefer and Patrick Martins. Our guest today is Peter Kaminsky, and our sponsor is White Oak Pastures. I'm sitting down. Yeah, sit down, get ready, because this is poetry, folks. (laughs) White Oak Pastures cattle 
are raised in a manner that has stood the test of time. It begins with southern sunshine, unpolluted country air, and fertile coastal soil. Yeah, baby. The cattle are allowed to roam the pastures and graze freely on sweet native grasses Mm -hmm. all of their lives. White Oak Pastures all-natural grass-fed beef. And let's make a note that it's got to be grass-finished, too. Okay, because all beef is grass-fed for the first 12 months, has been available in all of the Whole Foods stores in the Mid-Atlantic states. We hope that you will support their program through your purchase of our beef through one of these Whole Foods stores. And for more information, go to www.whiteoakpastures.com. Mm-mm, moo. <laughs> that is awesome. Man, I, I like it. That got you going, huh? Got You're you the only hot? one that makes Whole Foods sound unbelievably sexy. Oh, yeah. And We're going to have Whole Foods on Regional soon. Atlantic states. God. Yeah. That's what I like. But um, so we're back with... Uh, <laughs> We got to laugh out of Peter Kaminsky. We can't, oh get, we can't believe the silliness that goes on in here. Um, and we were just starting to um, to probe the pig, as it were. And uh, you had a question about field and stream and outdoor mm-hmm. living and all that stuff. And Peter announced that um, actually they had a lot to do with the sort of whole rise of the, I mean, to me, the meteoric rise of pork back into sort of the number one favorite meat of chefs, maybe mm-hmm. not of all Americans, because a lot of Americans are still buying commodity pork, which isn't mm-hmm. so great. Um, fast, cheap, and easy. Fast, cheap, and easy, yeah. But dry and flavorless, sadly. And actually, I had an interesting conversation with um, Todd Hadoff, who runs Allen Brothers out in Chicago. And he said that pork producers in this country really, you know, just basically killed their business by wrecking the genetics of their pork and that they are still scrambling to catch up. The Canadians never messed with their pork genetics the way we did with ours. You know, trying to do that lean, the other white meat thing, disaster for the pork industry. And they are still. Not at Heritage, Heritage Foods, exactly. There's still elves out there. Well, there's still people, you know, there are people who figured out, you know, fairly early on, I guess, um, that uh, that the, the the big white pig was not really cutting it in terms of, of good eating. So, um, Peter, you were saying that field and stream and outdoor living had a lot to do with the revival of, of no, sort of the, like, Well, it had to do with my revival. Your revival. <laughs> I see. Short story is... I was an editor at National Lampoon in the seventies. It was nuts. What is that? Tell tell our the listeners. National Lampoon. No, I mean I know, but I mean tell us a little bit about the the. I mean I know about it, but give I think a lot of our readers don't. Well, you know, Belushi was there then, and Chris Guest, and Bill Murray, and Sean Kelly, and you oh know, it was, it, it was it was, it was you show up at the crack of noon. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh You know, occasionally there'd be substances, and then around three or four. You'd go for an after-work drink uh, <laughs> until about ten, and uh, so that that was that was then. Anyway, I, I got into uh, somehow along the line there. I discovered fishing and fly fishing, and it sort of took over my life. And it was a great balance to the insanity of of Lampoon. And when I was excused from my job there, as people all people were at a certain point. I said, what the hell, I might as well write about this stuff. So I started writing about the outdoors, and there weren't a lot of like guys like me writing for the big sporting bags. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I liked going into the Midwest and the South, because that was a foreign country to me. Mm-hmm. And people welcome you when you're on a fishing and hunting mission. How did, would you approach these people? I mean, would this be a friend of a friend, or would you yeah. read an article somewhere? Yeah, it's just all different, you know, all different manners of, you know, uh, early networking. 
pre-digital networking. And you would cold call these people and say, I'd love to fit, you know, take a two-day tour with you down the river? Or? Make three calls. Mm-hmm. You always got to triangulate in to see if yeah, who's it got all the makes right. sense. Yeah. And I, I discovered country hams. I never ah. knew about these things. And uh, so it got to be for years, whenever I was on the road in the South for anything, and I had an extra hour or two, I'd try and find a great ham. And so I'd done a few uh, fishing books, uh, and my editors said, well, why don't you do a, quote, writing book uh, (laughs) about food? And I didn't have a clue. And then one day I said, you know, all these weird people I've met looking for a great ham. So I said, I want to find the best ham in the world. So that became, that's what launched a book called Pig Perfect. Seminal book in gastronomy, really. Well, thanks. It was a a real labor of love. I remember we knew each other while you were just coming onto the final, uh, final stages of publication. That's right. And you made us a great medieval pork roast with all kinds of aromatic uh, 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 spices. Still, some part of that pumping through your system. Oh yeah, yeah. (laughs) I haven't so. I ended up finding the best hams, but there's a footnote to that if we get to it, uh, in the west of Spain, the Iberico hogs that eat grass and acorns. Bellota. Bellota. Yeah. And there's B-E-L-L-O-T-A. B-E-L-L-O-T-A. Yeah. That's a food today. So it's a gorgeous part. It looks like a 300-mile golf course that's been sustainably farmed you know, for about a thousand years, where they cycle pigs, uh, sheep, goats, and cattle through there. So they will all eat different heights and stages of grass. So it's, you know, it's it's like a mini Serengeti. Mm -hmm. It's very uh, sustainable. And it's just absolutely delicious meat. You never, I never tasted pork like that. And the breed is Iberico, and that's, they call a black pig, right? They call it, yeah, it's called Pata Negra, it's called Habugo, it's called... So is it, bro- is it brothers with the Berkshire and the large black, or are they very different? All of our pigs, uh, all of our, you know, barnyard pigs in America are a cross of the Iberico hog, which is the native original Suscrofa, mm-hmm. with barnyard breeds uh, largely developed in Asia. Uh, pigs that are more docile, pigs that'll stay close to home, pigs that'll put on weight at different degrees. Mm-hmm. Good mothers. Degrees, good mothering That's ability. That's a really big deal. Yeah. In big so genetics. the Iberico then and barnyard pigs, interesting. And, and you know, Asian pigs, okay. Because most of the breed names are um, English breed names, large breeds. And I mean, some these of those are very breeds old here. breeds, yeah. I mean, like the, uh, the, the red wattle pig, isn't that a really, really old yeah, breed? Yeah, but that's from actually pac- from the South Pacific, from what I understand. Oh, is that right? I'm talking large black, Tamworth, Gloucester, Old yes, Spot. Yes, the Tamworth, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Those yeah. kind of ones. So, well, the English, as you know, they just became nuts for what, you know, improved agriculture, as they called it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they experimented like crazy with breeds. And that's where we get a lot of our our our, our breeds. Mm-hmm. They were interested in things that don't interest us that much, or they should, but they don't. At least in the commercial hog industry, they wanted lard. They wanted a lot of fat. Right. Uh, you know, they were interested in every cut of the pig. Yeah. Where, uh, you know, so you let them grow big and fat. Uh, you know, and develop 
the intramuscular fat, which is what gives any meat its succulence and taste. Um, and those, see now the acorn-fed pigs, until the advent of railroads in this country, so that you could transport animals over long distance, but more importantly, corn over long distance. Mm-hmm. Most of the hogs in the southeast of the United States, and that is the, the you know, the pork belt, uh, were raised in the forests. Uh, and most of the fodder in the forests uh, of, you know, mm-hmm. eastern United States... Fallen nuts. Is, is oak. Oak, I Oak, see. it's their preferred food. Uh-huh. So they would let pigs, you know, uh, uh, up until the Civil War... Pigs were raised in forests. Well, weren't raised. They were left in forests. And, and they would come back during when seduced, they got cold, right? Seduced back. Seduced. With a trail of corn, ah. which led them to their doom. And maybe doing wow. the same to us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the same might be happening um, to mankind. Can I make take a little tangential moment here and ask why, with the incredible overpopulation of wild pig in the pork belt and in the south and southwest, why are we not harvesting wild pig and eating it? I don't understand that. Do you know why? I, I don't. I mean, I mean, you, you you read about the problems that we have with wild pigs, feral pigs, which are yeah, yeah. you know rooting up crops and wrecking property and blah blah blah. And there's thousands of them, and yet somehow they're not harvested. Well, I don't. I don't understand. I, you know, I really that. don't know. Can they you must eat be those good eating. Kinds? Why really? not? Yeah. Boars? Why shouldn't sure. you be? I mean, wild boars, they raise wild, they farm it now. <laughs> sure. You know, so I don't understand what the genetics are of those pigs, well, you but know, I'm You do surprised. have to kill them at a certain time of year. They can be stringy unless you get them in that season in the when, fall, they're, when they're really fattening the fall, up. Yeah. Yeah. Can I go off a tangent? Exactly the same thing. He was uh, talking about fishing and all of his outdoor you know, work and all that. He would write columns for the you know, New York Times um, sports section, right, and food section. So I asked him the lost colony in Roanoke that starved to death. Yeah, and also they How all did kind that of starved. Why didn't they fish? Do you know the answer to that? No, other I than I, I, I don't them. know. So should I hazard a guess? So yeah, I want to hear. Of course, what more respected guests could there um, be? You know, e- Europeans, um, t- especially the you know the, the colonial types. Uh, tended to be meat eaters and to rely on meat. Hmm. I mean, why, for example, has Castro had such a difficult time uh, getting Cubans, you know, given all the embargoes they've got on their economy, Hmm. to eat more fish? It's just a lower class kind of thing. Interesting. So if you landed in in a, you know, new continent, you know, teeming with wild game, um, you know, you just... They're, they're beef eaters, so to speak, mm-hmm. the English to coin a phrase. Very interesting. Yeah, I always wondered why that didn't Well, happen. because, fi- but fish has always been a part of the human menu. I mean, when you were doing your studies in medieval cookery, for instance, the fish course was always part of, you know, a multi-course meal. I mean, say at the, you know, in, in sort of the royal... Well, no, actually, it's or, kind of the... Op- well, in very highest echelons, the, when the church was powerful, they would try to get the um, nobility to not eat meat on certain days. I think it came out to like two or three days during the week, and then right. there was like an entire month-long period. And so they were so disgusted by this concept of having to eat fish that they asked their chefs to disguise fish to taste like meat. Oh, and it was that kind of playing with food that led to sculptures and big castles and wedding yeah. cakes and marzipan, yeah, yeah, yeah. this and that, you know. Anyway. You know, another thing Thank is you, you got to talk. When people starve, it's in a time of scarcity and shortage. 
I don't, know, I don't know that, you know, maybe they did, maybe they did eat fish in the summertime. But in mm-hmm. those waters, in that time of year... There's not much? Yeah, I guess there, there ain't Shark. a whole lot of fish around. Yeah, yeah. That seems very possible, yeah. Right. They didn't well, have, like, the lobster and oyster population that we had, say, on this in the northeastern seaboard. Well, so those were two perfect tangents. You asked uh, why we don't hunt wild boar. I asked why Roanoke didn't fish. Um, well, now back to uh, the kind of pig thing. Tell us about some of your travels. I mean, I know you became very close with Nancy Newsom, who I'm proud to say called me out of the blue and ordered uh, three combos worth of our rare breed hams um, a couple months ago, which she needed to get in so that they'd be ready at the right time. I, I know you met her, but tell us about her or, or anyone else that was kind of interesting during your you know, travels through the U.S. Well, on the quest for the perfect <clears throat> pig. Nancy, I guess, is the other half of how this uh, th- that book started. Uh, um, I, um, I, I was in Louisville on another job. And uh, and I had time on my hands, and I looked through the like you know Louisville Lifestyle magazine, and I saw about the Seelbach Hotel, and said the guy there, the chef there, had cooked at the Beard House. I said, well, maybe he knows about hams. So I called him up, and uh, his second in command said, well, I got you one. I'll 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 be happy to sell it to you for fifty bucks. So it was like a dope deal. I had to beat him on the corner, <laughs> you know, and buy this, you know, ham in a baggie. No, it was a big, wonderful ham. <laughs> and it was, it was just, it was, as you know, Nancy's ham, her, her dad was alive then, Colonel Bill. It was delicious. So I said to the Food and Wine, why don't I do a story, which is all local stuff and green market stuff and local fish, which they have in the rivers in Kentucky, and, you know, we'll also do this wonderful ham. So I ended up visiting her and her dad out in uh, Princeton, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And uh, just just adored their ham. And she's, she's a force of nature. Force of nature, woman. I was just going to say that. She's a very poetic person, very spiritual person. You know, it's got a really great laugh. And... Uh, you know, it's got this ham house in the back. Looks like a big garage that's got, you know, a mold in it, M O L D, that is paradisical. How how old do you think? It's like almost a starter culture for bread. Like, how old do you think that mold is? I don't know. I don't know. Now. And that is what induces the fabulous flavor of her hams. Is that what it's you're an saying? element of it? Yeah. I bet. Yeah. Does really? she smoke their hams for she like forty eight hours? She salts and she she salts and she smokes. I think. Might be longer than forty-eight. I have, I have it. I wrote it down. Somewhere. But it's close. It's not like for two months or anything. No, no, no. It's just a little period. And lately, she sent me some of her thirty-month-old hams. Mm. She made some from the uh, Osceola hogs. Uh, she made some from a. a, a she might make some from a Berkshire. They're just. They have that a really old ham, like uh, like a great wine. It just has time for the flesh. And the food stuff to break down into more and more flavor components. Uh, What's the difference between the, those American style that are aged that long and like a San Daniele or a Parma? I mean, other than that, they're smoked from a taste uh, flavor profile. Like, are or they texture? Texture? Are they the same thing? No. Her, well, her her thirties. You know, her 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 older hams. The only thing I'm not a big fan of San Danieles and Parmas. Mm-hmm. Because and I've traveled around there an awful lot, looking for pigs that were raised right, 
that were, you know, on the right regimen that were killed when they were fat enough to have the fat that allows the meat to age without drying out. And you don't think that happens in those two regions? I don't. I, the only time I ever came across a great one, and I think it's the best ham in the entire world, uh, is a guy named Massimo Spigaroli. Uh, big supporter of slow food, very humble man who only raises heritage breed everything from corn to grapes to cattle to pigs. Mm. And he makes a culatello, which is a boneless ham, uh, that he can age for 36 months. And, you know, it's, and it's, it, it's been in a ham house that's been in continuous use for 700 years. Wow. And they also have been aging Parmesan cheese in there. So you get these caramelly notes from the Parmesan. Hmm. Parmesan. So, um, I, f- I forget your question was. I think the answer was Abraham Lincoln. So let's use a Serrano <laughs> as an example. Well, Serrano is by and large an industrial pig. In fact, I don't. You mean commodity genetics? You or? got it. Mm-hmm. You got it. Mm-hmm. And raised in confinement. Uh, the only hogs that I know of in Spain that are you know are the Belota are the hum, uh, are the Iberico hogs. Mm-hmm. By and large, Serrano pigs are white pigs. I think they're, they're old land race. So anyway, then um, I guess it can't be compared then. I mean, like uh, Colonel Newsom's, I mean, to uh, it's just a different product. Well, the process, I guess, is different. But the product, I mean, those hams like the Parma or the Serrano are meant to be sliced paper, paper thin. And they have that kind of glossy, dark red uh, coloring. And when we think of ham in this country... Um, usually it's more like the smoked ham. It's sort of pink and juicy. It hasn't, I mean, it hasn't sort of gotten to that point yet. Our, um, Nancy Newsom's like 30 month old hams are more on the long, the lines yeah. of those Daniele. I, 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 ser- I serve them style. like, I serve them like a prosciutto or a, yeah. You know. I remember it, getting Smithfield hams when we were little and those were like, had that compressed shape and those were also meant to be very thin. Is they were the wonderful. Same? Yeah, they were great. They were wonderful. You they know, don't make those salty, anymore? Salty, but fantastic. They do, but they're not as good as they used to be somehow. Well, it used to be by law or by covenant that they had to be fed on peanuts oh. and they had to be hung at, ye- at least a year and a day. That's no longer the case. Hmm. Which is, by the way, why Sam Edwards, you know, are one of our biggest Medici's of yeah, heritage foods. Absolutely. He ships thousands of pounds of peanuts to our farmers. For, oh. So they have single lots of their pigs. You that know. are just being... Because yeah. he makes the incredible Suriano Yeah, ham. two years later comes yeah. out this ham. Have you had that, He Peter? sees a marked difference. Really good. It's wonderful. You like? Have you met Sam on your travels? No, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I, guess I, I, I talked with Sam. You know, when I was f- first starting the book, you know, I came back from Spain. I said, oh, man, the Spaniards brought you know pigs everywhere and left them. And yeah. pigs tend to make more pigs. <laughs> so we, we have to have these genetics around and, and I was looking for Spanish genetics and I found some but what interested me was I was I, was, I called every farmer oh, I called a hundred farmers or maybe 200 farmers from Georgia up to Virginia to find somebody who is feeding their hogs peanuts and peanut hay which is a very high antioxidant green which, which animals need too and I never found one Wow. I never found one. 
you know, peanuts are shipped off to that other... That makes no you sense see, that's since why, it's peanut country down there. That's why I love, you know, Roberta's heritage foods. Like, with when there's zero of something that had such a rich tradition, there's no time to wait for policy and nonprofits to do this or that. You just have to start it. There just has to be one dude who raises 100 pigs, and that inevitably will become 500 and 1,000. Because as you differentiate... A product, you know, it now has a, a friendly place, you know, in big cities, but even, you know, everywhere. That's a great point. You know, so I like vigilante tactics, and we always tell our listeners, you know, just do it, you know. But um, yeah. then Nike sued us for, for using that term. But. <laughs> Patrick, I couldn't agree more. And I think we sort of tend to get morally hung up on supporting sustainability, mm-hmm. the idea of. And so supporting local and supporting organic. Right. But it's not like where you go and vote every four years and check something off and you're mm-hmm. done. You know, you can do, you personally in your own life can do something Absolutely. right now. Have a lot of, uh, yeah, you're, you're, you're so right. And, um, you know, that's what, you know, is needed action. I mean, we're in two shipping containers. There's a roof, 40,000. It's a pure farm, you know, happening over there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, vigilante tactics. I mean, all else has failed, you know. I mean, they're literally drilling for gas on farms. That's how bad things have gotten, you know. So, um, yeah, a little bit of vigilantism um, can go a long way. And, and I always remember what Bill Clinton said. One of his old friends was like, you never took care of me. I had my issue that you really meant something to you. He's like, you didn't make it so that I could ignore it. You know, you you should have been more in my face. You should have been right there. You should have made it an issue. And then guess what? I have to deal with it. Change happens. But as long as you remain silent. Um, anyway, well, I'm happy you agree. Um, Katie, where should we go now? I mean, I have a couple more questions, but we only have uh, about 10 more minutes. So where should we go next? <laughs> um, well, one of the things that really interested me, I mean, to just follow up on the whole pig story here, because um, because pig has suddenly become like such a mainstay of, of restaurant, of sort of fine dining menus, especially. Um, and you know, suddenly now we're we're eating lardo and pork belly uh, in quantities that haven't been seen probably since I don't know when. Um, and it's it's amazing how people have gone from uh, you know from vilifying those products and like you can't eat that, it's so bad for you, blah blah blah. And now suddenly it's it's everybody wants it and it's on every menu. Mm-hmm. So I think you know that kind of a sea change in the way in what people's expectations are and what becomes acceptable or even desirable to eat has you know has such a trajectory and is such a you know i guess pendulum in a way um i was wondering if peter had any thoughts about like where is the pendulum going next what do you think is going to be the next sort of big thing in terms of of how people um respond to more heritage foods on the menu or more heritage options in the market well having spent so much time in argentina and uruguay uh i'm a big supporter uh, I like supporter as in I'll put it in my mouth yeah. of uh, grass fed beef yeah yeah it's so much more full, fully flavored I agree um, with you what I haven't found it, it I, I love it I order it it's great you know I think you have to know what cuts you're ordering you know a ribeye tends to be more marble mm-hmm. a grass fed animal is more like a wild animal which yeah. tends to be leaner Mm-hmm. Which tends to be tougher. They're not raised just to simply to be cut with a with a fork. 
uh, which for, a, lot, a lot of our beef is. And for carnivores out there who really want to eat as much meat as they can for many, many years, grass-fed is so light, you can eat it six days a week in little bits, and it doesn't fill you up. Whereas if you ate corn-fed six days a week, I mean, you would be in the hospital when you're 35, you know, or 40. So it's, it's, it's a lighter, more everyday part of the menu when it's grass-fed. But I'm looking forward to uh, what we don't do in this country uh, and they don't do it in Uruguay either. I don't know why. Is age our grass-fed beef? Because I, you know, aged beef has got a wonderful, funky, you know, element to it. And I think funk is maybe the most important food. Could you go back to that thing. elements of taste thing? Yeah, that's actually here funky. Well, there is a reason. I mean, cabbage, aged meats, um, and cheeses. They're they're it's, doing it at Marlow and Sons. Yeah, they're aging grass-fed. Mm-hmm. Um, the pro, you know, the Marlow and Company rather. The biggest reason that it's Marlow and Daughters, I think. Marlow and Daughters is there their, you go. Um, butcher shop. Um, the real problem with aging steaks is that you lose so much volume, and for somebody who is in the business of trying to make money off of a business that has very little margin to it, um, you can lose up to thirty percent of your weight or forty mm-hmm. percent. So that's, I mean, that's every that's dry aging but that's also true of dry aged corn fed of course it is yeah absolutely and you can get you can find that oh yeah de braga and spittler doing it like you know, like better than anybody else they, got do, it. they do a great job but um the other thing is is that because there's less marbling in the steak that's grass fed and grass finished i think we really have to make that distinction because every beef grows up on pasture to the point where that it is then sent to the feedlot and so, and that's when they're finished on flaked grain or corn or whatever the mix is, at the, or distiller's mash, which is the big thing now. Um, it's gra- You really have to make the distinction of grass finished, I think. Um, Absolutely. Because, you know, otherwise it's not it's not what we're talking about. And what we're talking about is grass finished, which has, you know, the better omegas and it's fat and it's not as fatty. And I'm I'm a little curious about how that would age, just because it doesn't have that as much intramuscular fat. And it's um, it tends to be a little on the drier side. Well, I think that's the the thing they have to figure out. Yeah, I mean, um, I wonder if you wet aged that, it would be better. I don't know. I, I've had some that's been that you, you know traditionally a deer carcass is hung as an entire Absolutely. carcass. Yeah, I've had a few grass fed animals that have been aged that way, and man, and beef. Yeah, it, it was great. And they're hung with their hides on or off? I guess they have to take them off. Don't I they? don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Um, well, like venison is usually left with the hide on. We right? only have a good news is we have barely tapped the surface, so hopefully you can come back in a, in a few weeks or something. But before you leave, I, I got to ask. Uh, <laughs> we always ask um, um, every guest, uh, you know, for advice for tourists taking taxis. You know, like what they and I found out you are a cab driver for a year. So what is some advice you would have for people from out of town coming <laughs> in taking a cab? I think that's great. I've always secretly wanted to be a cab driver. You know, back when I was young. I'm sure there's still time. With the checker cabs and the well, two Well, if you had a cool cab, yeah. Those are like the I London. Drove you drove oh, a checker? Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, excellent. Yeah, that's how, you have a picture of it? No. No? No, no, no. Well, you didn't own your checker. You just drove well, your checker, right? So, uh, yeah, you, I didn't, didn't I own barely checker. own my socks. At the <laughs> <laughs> but if, if I stay, well... I always, always ask, you know, we live in Brooklyn, uh, so not everybody knows the way around Brooklyn. So I'll always say, we're going to whatever the address is, and do you know how to get there or do you need directions? 
just started off straight that actually bonds you with the cab driver because it takes out all mystery from the ride and uh you know you're talking with the guys has uh, your life in his hands yeah really well <laughs> I, I do make a point of asking no, cabs yeah, you know many of them you know it's like, like a testosterone yeah. thing they, they won't it they won't come out if you say take me to this place they won't say i don't know how to get there but if you point black ask them, do you know how to get there or would you yeah. like directions, they're more liable to say, I have no idea where that's going. Please yes. tell me how to what, get there. What do you think? Yes. Ain't going to happen, help you much if you just landed from Minnesota on your first trip to New York. <laughs> Absolutely not. At least you know not to get into the cab or to get out right away. Well, I mean, when I took a cab out here a couple mm-hmm. of weeks ago when I had first injured my knee, and um, so I took, I came here in taxi, and I said to my driver, who was a lovely man from uh, Senegal, do you actually know how to get there, or are you just telling me you do? And what <laughs> because did he... I don't. Oh, okay. And he said, no, I, th- I think I know, I think I know. That's and good. Senegalese my... are very nice. Oh, they're great, fabulous people. But he was here in, like, no time. Like, he more than knew. He was like a homing pigeon, this dude. I loved him. We didn't even talk about Jackie Gleason. Now, I know um, when he was coming up, Jackie, you know, uh, in, the, in, in Hollywood and all that on television, you were a big fan, Katie. Oh, was I ever? <laughs> I did. I truly did really? watch the Jackie Gleason show My, every Sunday. Absolutely. I never liked The Honeymooners. It was too depressing. But I loved, he, he was like a total character. And for my era, early 70s, like a Cannonball Run or uh, Burt Reynolds, you know, oh, he, I was, did not he like would play him the those. sheriff. Sheriff. I know that wasn't really what he was, but no, that's how I knew to like him. But his variety show was fabulous. He was very charismatic, even yeah. in that old age where he'd just make a face and it, it held significance. People are saying, why the hell are we talking about? But that we'll have to tell them on our next visit. Well, yeah, yeah we'll tell them on the next well, visit. We'll there is a reason. We'll your even further. Yeah, I, don't, I feel like we barely scratched, scratched yeah, the surface with you. Well, I'm well you thanks, uh, Peter, and uh, we'd love it. You're in Thank Brooklyn. You for coming. Are you born and raised? No, I was born in Kearney, New Jersey. Kearney, New Jersey. Always a carny at heart. All right. Well, thanks. We're sponsored by Wider Pastors. We're going to come back with with Mike Edison Edison and talk about wrestling and other things. I climbed the Redwood Hill. Was on a rainy day. To rise above the crowd. And talk with Mother Nature for a while.
change for any man. I've tried to comfort her, but she would not be still. I'll not forget the day when Mother Nature crowned Redwood Hill. I'll not forget the day when Mother Nature crowned Redwood Hill. Hey, this is Steve, Chef Steve with Good Shepherd Poultry. Well, <clears throat> today we're going to talk about a, a couple of things, and one of the things I want to talk about was is the uh, the uh, idea of making broth from chicken. One of the things that we, we know in the past is that uh, getting the chicken ready for a meal, there was always that carcass left over. And what do we do with it? A lot of people would just throw that carcass away. And that is sad because there is a second feast waiting to be made with that carcass. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the benefits of that. One of the things I want to mention is we're pretty excited about is that Good Shepherd, we are getting ready to sell a or have on the market for you a actual package stock starter. And this is actually the carcass bones of the uh, chicken after certain parts have been removed. And uh, with that, you're able to make this wonderful stock. Now, some of the research that we found out about working with this particular stock is with our birds, when we can say this, is there's increased trace minerals. Also, there is increased vitamins that are in our carcasses that you won't find in other birds. So that automatically means increased flavor. So we're excited about that, and I do know that... uh, Heritage Foods will have those available for you. You just have to get in touch with Patrick Martin and his bunch, and they will be able to set you up with some wonderful chicken bones for um, some great, great broth or stock. Stock has been used throughout time. It just seems like stock was always there, and it's, first of all, it was a stock pot, and quite often what they would do is uh, after the chicken would be used, uh, they would just throw anything into that uh, a pot of water with that carcass, boil it down, and they would add vegetables, they would add other pieces of meat, and it was an ongoing soup that quite often was used. French cooking brought it to a different uh, level, and that is that they started using stock in flavoring things such as rice, things of this nature. So it really is a, a great thing to have available. I know that you can buy stock on the uh, at your regular grocery stores, canned, and but I will tell you that you need to look at the sodium level because usually that sodium is what is enhancing the flavor of um, of that broth. What we look at is natural flavor that comes from the bird. So let's talk a little bit about how you make those stocks. And one of them is, as this sounds a little bit unusual, but we find that if you are making your stock before you do anything, take that carcass, break it up, and then also, if necessary, if you have leg bones or thigh bones, break those bones. And one of the reasons why we say to do that is because inside is the natural marrow that helps bring out the flavor of that stock, and it makes all the difference in the world. So that's one of the first things. And if you buy one of our products, of course, it'll come in a package, and that package will automatically have a breastbone, it'll have a backbone, it'll have a couple of wing tips in it, a couple of leg bones and thigh bones, and also the neck. With that, you should be able to make a phenomenal stock, which will give you a tremendous amount of rich flavor to be used as uh, 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 in um, uh, maybe other dishes that you have. 
here's my recipe for that, and it works uh, pretty simple. It's not difficult at all. You just take your bones, break them up, make sure that they're in a pot, cover them up about two inches above the water line of the actual carcass, and uh, start it simmering. Do not boil this. A lot of people make the mistake of boiling when they make a broth, and you're just kicking out a lot of those vitamins and trace minerals that we were just talking about. What you want to do is just get it to simmer. And I usually add about a tablespoon of salt at, at most, and I like to use sea salt. I like it. Uh, it's much better. Then also uh, half a teaspoon of pepper just to, to give you a little bit of peak to the flavor. Then I, I start throwing in things such as the bottom part of your celery. If you buy stock celery, they, they, so many people throw away that bottom half. Cut off the very, very back end of that and chop it up a little bit and, and throw it into the pot. You'll find that you're using everything uh, that's, uh, that's good for that. Also, uh, carrots. And if you're lucky enough to get some carrot tops, that would be great. I use a, a, a whole a, a whole yellow uh, onion, which is another thing. I like yellow onions when I'm making stock. White onions do well for things like sandwiches, things of that nature. But I really like the yellow onion, general yellow onion, because it, it seems to bring out flavor even more. Sometimes I will go ahead and chop up tomato, bring that tomato in there and chop it up, give it a little bit different flavor and a little bit different color. And I do what we call our... Uh, an herb bouquet, and it's really relatively what you want to do, but I take a small cheesecloth. I take some parsley sprigs, one bay leaf, about a half a teaspoon of sage, and I prefer uh, rosemary, and so I like uh, about a half a teaspoon of rosemary in the in this little bouquet or sachet, as they would call it. And I throw that, tie it up, throw it in the pot, and I just cover it with that two inches of water, make sure. For the first four or five minutes that it starts simmering, I like to skim off some of that scum that comes to the top. It usually stops after about four or five minutes. And after you do that, just let it simmer for a couple of hours. What will happen is that you will break down all the, the uh, chicken bone uh, flavors that will start coming out, the little bits of meat that are left on the carcass, all of that. Now, you can use a cooked carcass also. Of course, it's not going to give you as much flavor as, as a cooking up a raw one, but it still works well in giving you a, a good soup base if you want. Now, what I usually do is I strain this after it's cooked, and I will cook at least two hours or until I feel that the flavor is at its peak, and that's just a matter of practice. Then I go ahead and chill it down, put it in a bowl, and I chill it uh, down after I've strained it. And you'll have a little bit of the fat that comes to the top of that, and you want to scrape that fat off. It has pretty much rendered its flavor out, so you really don't want to use keeping that. If you will notice, once it is chilled in your refrigerator, there is a gelatin kind of effect that takes place with that broth. We have found with the heritage birds that that, that uh, gelatin is much, much heavier, much stronger. It's, it's like jello instead of just this uh, light gelatin process. This is because you've pulled out of that bird every bit of that flavor, and it makes it uh, a hearty base for soups, for other dishes, for casseroles, uh, all of these things that, that you use uh, soup broth for. I like it. It's a great, great taste, and uh, we're proud to be able to offer that now through Good Shepherd here, and it makes it a, a great-tasting uh, dish when you're making chicken rice soup or even uh, chicken noodle soup. Very, very tasty. You can also freeze this once it's been done. You can freeze it. I have someone who, who freezes it in small blocks, and then they just simply pull out a block of it uh, when they want it. Uh, 
and it'll keep well in your freezer. That's using the stock and making the most of the bird, and that's one of the things that Heritage here at Heritage Poultry, we really, really feel strong about making sure that you get the full benefit of what the bird has to offer. So it's a, it's a great thing. Next week, I'm going to be talking about liver and gizzards and what you can do with those. I just came back from a major contest, and one of the most wonderful salads that was there was had, had uh, fried liver and uh, uh, heart on it. It was absolutely delicious. So I will plan to talk to you again, maybe around the same time next week. Well, I'm singing Mary. Oh, Mary, don't you weep. Tell Martha not more. Well, 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 Mary. Tell Martha not more. Cause Pharaoh's on and don't you know that in dry singing Mary, tell Martha not to moan. Well, well, singing Mary, tell Martha not to moan. Well, 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 Mary, tell Martha not to moan. Cause Pharaoh's on me. Don't you know that been dry? Say it, Mary. Tell Martha not to moan. One more time, sing it if I believe that I would. I'm going to stand my foot on that rock where Moses stood. Cause Pharaoh's on me. Singing Mary, tell Martha not to moan. One more time, singing if I could. I, 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 Singing Mary. Oh, Mary, don't you? Well, I'm singing Mary. Oh, Mary, don't you? Well, I'm singing Mary. Oh, Mary, don't you? They got somebody else to help me call oh, Mary. Somebody needs a tell to Mary. Oh, Mary, oh, don't yeah. you She don't have to cry oh, no more. You to tell you serve a mighty oh, God. Mary, don't you don't we? have to worry about your problems. Oh, Mary, don't we? Don't oh, no. we? I'm not worried oh, about tomorrow. Mary, you your joy for your sorrow. Won't you cry? Oh, Mary, oh, don't Drowned in the sea, Lord, singing Mary. Tell Martha not to moan. Cherry home.
vibes. I can dig it. Number one bluegrass band uh, in America. Play in Nashville. Uh, her name is Sia. I have a signed poster from Cherry Holmes, and they are amazing. Um, I really, really, really love them. You like bluegrass? I do, and I love that gospel sound, that down-home gospel sound. We're here with uh, Mike Edison. We just had uh, Peter Kaminsky. Um, we just had Peter Kaminsky on, uh, Pig Perfect. Um, actually, could you just grab me that piece of paper? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, Pig Pig Perfect. He's a seven fires. Uh, I mean, really, really interesting guy. I mean, I think he's 69 years old. He's He wrote for Field and Stream, you know, New York Times. Um outdoor life food and wine um anyway just super super cool guy very knowledgeable so intelligent like every every time you know he'll just drop a little synthesized awesome point you know in the middle of a, a million others so um we're about to come on with mike edison here ah, comes katie. katie um that's right she's been liberated from the bar she's got a cocktail in her hand we're here with white oak pastors i'm gonna ask to mooch a sip on her way because i'm trying to drink less you know a little <laughs> bit of a cleanse white oak pastures cattle are raised in a manner that is uh that is that has that has withstood the test of time um it is 100 percent grass-fed he does it in georgia and uh Grass finished, which as Katie so eloquently points out, so poetically, so so you know, riddled with wisdom and charisma. Hold on, I need a uh, a sip before you uh, right. squeeze in there. Um, anyway, White Oak Pastures beef, we love it. Will Harris, a true spokesperson for sustainability in beef. Uh, he's a real marine. So um, anyway, Katie, uh, how was uh, how was the bar at Roberta's? <laughs> you have you have a very healthy glow about you today, Katie. <laughs> <clears throat> Katie is um. Peter said he had a great time. I was um. He did. Walking out, and he was like, "That was a good show." Uh, he told me he was a fan. Well, you know, because I had to gush over him because I am a huge fan of his work. But um, he was a fan of the show, or just of the one he witnessed now? Uh, no, he. I think he was a fan of the show that he's witnessed now. Oh, I see. But I think that he's probably going. Because I was going to say that guarantees us we have a listener. Well, yeah. <laughs> He may listen again. You know, you never know. We hope so. Well, I hope he's going to listen to this part with Mike Edison. Now, Mike, you had a horrific time getting here. Oh, man. The L train was Nightmare City today. So you left your band uh, practice? I left the band practice at 11 a.m. on a Sunday. Now, how's that, that dedication, by, dude? Dude, that's, that's some real punk rock shit going on there. <laughs> Play at 11 by any means necessary. I said, I got to be on the radio. What do you guys want to do? You know, lesser, lesser, lesser mortals would have said sleep in, but these guys were there at eleven o'clock, Hardcore. ready to rock. Tell us about your band, and then nah, let's not talk about What's that. What's the name of it? But the Edison Rocket Train. This morning we're rocket working train. on the Rocket, the rocket train. train. Rocket Train, rock and roll. We're playing uh, this coming uh, Friday night. Okay, um, at a party for Fancy Magazine, our friends, mm-hmm. uh, FM, um, FM, Fancy Magazine, uh, with a band called the Brimstones. Edison Rocket Train will be at Don Pedro's right here in uh, Bushwick, Brooklyn, awesome. New York. Don but, Pedro's. But me, talk about finger on the pulse, man. We we have the no. That actually has been trademarked by the Snacky Tunes. Um, you're going to be subpoenaed by I'll be Nat sued. in like 15 minutes. <laughs> Rack Tech would never do that to me. We're engineered by uh, Nat, Nat Wiener, and executive producer of the network is Jack, Jack Inslee. Inslee. 
Looking good, Jack. Tag team champions. Jack is um he has agreed to get us an AC unit um by the end of the summer. So uh, okay. that's pretty good. Just news. When we need by it. the end of the summer is when you need it most. Uh, absolutely. Gives him some time. I like it when it's a hot box in here. Right? <laughs> it's great. Oh my god. So you had a hard bit of time. <laughs> well, you know, the worst L-train? part of it is I'm stuck on the L train and um there's a train on fire or something apparently, but seriously it was <laughs> oh, stuck. It was stuck. The first train that came by, I was um the first avenue, the first came train that came uh, you know, headed toward Brooklyn, did not stop at First Avenue. It just went cranking by, filled with people. Okay, what's going on? Yeah. And I watch entirely too much uh, TV, like, like 24. When I see something like that, it's like, okay, this is just too weird. I need Jack Bauer to figure this out. The next train <laughs> did stop, but then just passed by uh, Graham and uh, it stopped at Laura Moore and just kept going until it came to a halt right before Montrose. And apparently... That first train that was by was stuck and stopped. It needed to be evacuated for something. Oh, my god! But the, the real wow. uh, ignominy of this whole situation is I'm reading the New York Post, okay, while I'm on the train, waiting for it to start up, to be on time. Trying uh, to get to Brooklyn. Trying to put An the punk in punctuality, as I do. <laughs> um, and I have to, to read the New York Post, of course, because when in doubt, go to the Post. And here I am, apparently... It's me. I take this very personally. The blight of Brooklyn is this anti-Manhattan rhetoric. I'm forced... To read um, you story risk- called "There Goes the Neighborhood." Williamsburg faces a new scourge: bridging tunnel crowds from Manhattan. Ooh. Okay, and suddenly, yeah, well, suddenly, I'm the bad guy. Yeah, right. You know, let me tell you something. You know, years ago, I love Brooklyn. Oh. I'm, you know, always have, and always, you know, I mean, why not? It's just part. It's part of my city. Um, as is Queens and the Bronx, and uh, Staten I'm not even anti-Staten Island. You know, oh I, I fear not the island. Um, I love the boat. You know they you know they sell beer on the Staten Island ferry. I yes, one of the last we, we, places that left because they just took beer off of the uh, metro line, or no, it's not the metro line. They just took the bar car off of the of, uh, the Long Island Railroad. Yeah, or the, uh, Island. Metro oh, really? North. They still have it on Metro North. Yeah, I mean, well, I guess you just have to not go buy every a beer. not every not every train. But has imagine it, if they sold beer on the F train. <laughs> you know, I'd like to see the bar car on the C train. Yeah, yeah, I um, would like to see that too. That's not the only thing I'd like to see on the C train. <laughs> Um, but we can keep that shrouded in mystery. But anyway, here are apparently, uh, you know, the, the Manhattanites coming, the Manhattanites. And that's it. You know, the Manhattans, apparently, they're painting with a pretty uh, broad brush here. Um, but many neighborhoods but, have been raised, right? I mean, Soho, Upper West Side used to be, you know, accessible for everybody. Then Soho was yeah, accessible. The Upper now, West Side is like a big strip mall now. It's really and and, and and my so neighborhood as well. Uh, where I live near, near uh, Gramercy Park and Kipps Bay. Yeah. Um, I was hoping I was hoping I was going to go queer. When I moved in 10 years ago, I said, this is going to be Chelsea East. I can't wait for my neighborhood to turn gay. You know, yeah. property value is going to go up. Good yeah. restaurants, cute places to have brunch. It'll be but very no, neat. I got uh, right. I got what Good a friend clothes. of mine calls um, the PFAs, the post-frat assholes. And Ooh. that's really what they're talking about, I think, in the story. But yet, Manhattan, I, Manhattan like, apparently is new code for uh, douchebag. Well, I think that's unfair. Verily, my name is Douchebag. (laughs) (laughs) Call me Douchebag. I've been in Manhattan for 33 years. You know, I I took the L train, but I could have taken my Hummer. But um, gotten it stuck on the uh, Manhattan Bridge. But you know what? No, but I'll tell you what. I don't need to hear this kind of, kind of bullshit from you know these Williamsburg hipsters. You know, with unfortunate tattoos and then their crappy going nowhere bands. You know, criticizing me because I live in what they call the city. Yeah. Okay. Let me tell you something. If where you live is so hot, why do you call where I live the city? <laughs> <laughs> 
That's good. And I'm so glad you don't have any tats. Not <laughs> that you know of. I'm still young, though. You never know. <laughs> don't don't fail me, got. Mike. I like to be the only other person in this, you know, square, you know, five square miles that's not heavily tattooed. So uh, what's up? What else has been going on? We haven't seen you, and uh, you anchored while Katie was away and, oh, yes. and raiding sword. Brilliantly. Brilliantly. <laughs> Uh, where have you been, Katie? Besides the bar at Roberta's? Oh, I went to Europe. I took my kid to to uh, London and Paris for the first time in her young. Don't get Mike totally started on London. Uh, how'd that go? Get to get a little sunshine. Get a little. Uh, not a not a drop of it. Not a drop. It of rained it. every single day, of course. except for one. Yeah, that's, all right. that's what but it's that was supposed fine. to do. It didn't matter. It, the, that's the good colors, you disappointed. The colors are suited to a cloudy climate, and uh, so that was fine. We loved it, and we had a blast. I have a lot of friends in London, so. That was a bit of an old, you know, homecoming week for me. And then we did three days in Paris, and uh, that was just because, you know, it's and you only two and a half hours food. away. It's like, how could you not go? And you I couldn't, couldn't find, find any good food. food. So you couldn't weird. find any good food in Paris. Yeah, isn't that interesting? That, you you actually have to work a bit. She's right. You well, have to work that. a little bit. I mean, London uh, is notorious for having bad food. But because actually, Paris, all contraire. <laughs> well, to tell you the truth, we ate a lot better in London. And, uh, yeah, they have a pub culture. Everybody's yeah, food being like, made I, on every street Yeah, I would street rather somehow. do that. And in yeah. Paris, it was like, it was a, as my neighbor <laughs> famously said to me, Paris always disappoints me because somehow I always wind up in some place that is the equivalent of Tom's, which is the diner on the Upper sure. West Side made famous by Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> which, which is, which is absolutely incredible. Incredibly, I mean, the, so when I was in, when I was an inmate at Columbia, we used to eat there once in a while because it was so so damn cheap. <laughs> I but I mean, it was, it was dirty and, and oh, bad disgusting. and couldn't even quite even get the eggs quite right. Yeah, there. no, well, they back couldn't in get the anything day, right. The worst coffee food ever. shop culture was culture. Like if you were the richest oh, yeah. person in the city, you still went to the coffee shop two times. Diner a Diner culture, coffee shop culture, yeah, sure. Diner, yeah. Anyway, so that's that's essentially where we wound up. And although there was one famous. There, <laughs> My favorite thing was I we our last day in Paris. We're leaving, you know, later the, in the day, and uh, we're at the flower market. So um, I say to the guy, you know, like, where is a good place to eat around here? Oh, he says, you know, he gives me this long song and dance about this restaurant. You know, it's Auvergne cooking. You know, blah blah blah, which is a specific region in France. I happen to like the cheese from Auvergne a lot. You know, and I know the food is good. So we go there. It's called Aubunia. And um, we sit down, and uh, we're, they, they, one thing is like... Is that even French? Aubunia. Aubunia. What does that B-O-U-G-N-A-T. mean? B-O-U-G-N-A-T. It's a slang term for somebody from Auvergne. Oh, okay. So anyway, um, so they sit us in this, Pardon? what is clearly Siberia, <laughs> which is like this little sort of alcove off of the dining room. So we can see everybody. I kind of like the table, but mm-hmm. I think to myself, oh man, we are in Siberia. We might as well have a curtain here. You're, you know? you're, you're getting the uh, Yankee go home We're treatment. getting the Yankee treatment. Yeah. So we're just there for a while, a nice long while. And eventually, you know, the waiter ambles over and he says, you know, what would you like? So um, you answer he, in perfect French. Uh, yes, I do because I speak French quite so well. Let's, let's hear some of it. I think it would yeah. turn just on the listening audience immensely <laughs> to hear you speak French. But, I'll start. I'll be, I'll role play the waiter. Bonjour, madame. Mm-hmm. Bonjour, monsieur. Alors, euh, 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 j'aimerais bien euh, prendre. Nous allons prendre le le le. le, le, le je ne sais pas quoi, oh, mais man. non le le. Oh, blanquette de veau. Okay, so we ordered the blanquette de veau, which Did is he, like a veal stew. How many words are you into your sentence before he pegs you as an American? Well, he he didn't even have to let me open my mouth. He could oh. see we were Americans. So and then <laughs> and then my my daughter is having my sister. My daughter is having the a pasta dish. Okay, great. So he goes away and he comes back and what does he bring to the table? What? Okay, we've ordered a veal stew and a pasta dish. A guess, pizza. Guess what a he brings? A cheeseburger. He brings a bottle of ketchup. 
Oh, oh man. <laughs> You're like, oh, that slap in the finger wave. Oh, man. Oh. That is harsh. Well, I was like, I, I was like, you know, I, I looked at him. I said, you mean because we're American, we're we're going to eat you ketchup un- on our fucking, excuse me, mm-hmm. on our veal stew? God bless the internet. Say yeah. what you like. Jeez. But seriously, he took one look at your untutored American yeah. face and, and he thought knew you that were we had like... to eat ketchup. Yeah. So then the so next thing is. So did you just is, wail on his ass? No, I just said. I just you made just, a joke you about polite. you know like oh oh because we're American of course we have to eat ketchup you know so you, gotta, you gotta sort these guys out he gives me out. this he gives you me need this to grab by the grin. collars and say oh, look here it was really something so then he goes away and then he comes back with a wine list and uh, so I pick out a wine and it's it says vieille vigne you know old vines so I don't what's old vines I mean I thought all vines were old you know and he says well and it's a, it was a Chardonnay. And or some other no Sauvignon Blanc. So and he said he looks at me with a straight face and he says it's a white wine. Oh, <laughs> man, <laughs> friggin' French. Well, was we have great. um we have and what's uh, the soup du jour? Oh, madame, that is the soup of the day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. all right. Listen, <laughs> this is great. <laughs> Let me tell you so, something, Pierre. Anyway, it, it sort of went devolved from that. So by the end of my piche, I had taken a piche of wine, right? So, so I'd had two glasses of wine, which is a little, I don't drink during the day usually, except for here. So, <laughs> so I was, you know, I was feeling feeling like no you pain. Had to by take the end of a piche. Yeah. and I say, and so I spent about fifteen minutes writing him a really vicious note in French, which of oh. course because I can't write French very well, it took me a long because I didn't want to make any mistakes. So you left him a note. Interesting. Note. My daughter would not let me leave the note. Really? I read her the note and she was like, no, mom, don't You're do all that, pissed mom. Off. Don't do that, mom. Well, we shouldn't be nice to the French, but still, I want to cut uh, to 20 seconds of uh, Marcel Marceau. What is all this water in here, you guys? Hold on, Marcel Marceau's on. <laughs> no, wait a second. Marcel Marceau, you're in a I think he's doing him. the glass box. Guys, he was doing the box. He's doing the it? dying bird. I thought you guys were American and you'd prefer this. Yeah, yeah. Mime is money. Mime is, is money. This, a Jerry Lewis episode? What's going on here? Yeah, but that thing with the waiter, I mean, not to not to har- labor, belabor it, you know, un- unnecessarily, but it, it really was. It was like the it was the quintessential French finger wave to the that American is... tourist. It was, it was so funny in a way, because, I mean, you know, it's Whatever. And also you know, catch up on listeners. the table. Yeah. See, I never have any problems when I'm in Paris. And my, I, that was and my, the only and my French experience is we had that was not minimal at best. I can sort of wade to the menu. I can you know, I'm always well, very polite. Else was always great. Please and thank you. Everybody um, else was great. And not only they were great in a way that was not like trying too hard to be great. They were just like, mm-hmm. Okay, cool, you're Americans. That's great. That's you fine. Should, yeah, yeah, my mom lives there. Leap L I P P. There's a bunch of really cool places oh, that are also Leap, yeah. Leap, yeah, no, well, places like there, that. Yeah. And then when you get mad, you see also for you know, for our listeners out there, like when you get mad in America, you go like this with your hand. All right. Now in France, everybody, you go like this. No, it's the radio package. No, I, I would do this. Oh, I would do this. I would do this. You guys, my new thing. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, you're, you're, you're like, you're like, did you hear Katie took a fall while you were gone? Just uh, one of those rare occurrences of day drunkenness. Actually, yes. Actually, no. If I had been drunk, I probably wouldn't have hurt myself. Oh, true that. The fact you was, fell pretty I was, well considering. Are you kidding? I broke my freaking finger and oh. I crushed my kneecap. Oh man. man. Oh no! It's a disaster. I felt horrible. I should have caught you. I was right there. Well, I mean, you know, who knows that you're going to fall? I said to you know my my man Curtis, I'm like, I need to learn how to fall. He says, how the hell are you going to learn how to fall? Whoever knows they're going to fall until they've fallen. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, practice. you know, it was an ugly moment. It definitely was. Patrick was very sympathetic and sweet, though. Well, you you punched it out. You walked all the way to the uh, Essex Street Market. Yeah. And, you know, you were strong. Well, I wasn't going to pass up that cheese that I had ordered from Anne. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> fromage de queue or get, whatever it was. It was fabulous. Get you through the uh, bedridden well, days. And there, and there is the thing, you know, it used to be you have to go to Paris to get French food, to get real French food. And yeah. You no longer have to. The food here on it, you know, sort of on the cheap, cheap and easy food in this country, I'm sorry to say, if you know what you're doing and you spend a little time like sourcing out the good shops, the good coffee shops, the good falafel mm. joints or whatever it is, you're going to do better. Well, I'm going to uh-huh. narrow that down. We're talking about New York City, which is the best eating city in the world. Yeah, I, I, I would I agree. Well, I mean, I think New York, you can get anything, you can get it anytime, and you can get it, you know, like, yeah, if you find the right falafel, you can find a great piece of pizza. Yeah. I mean, I can get an avocado at three in the morning if I need one. What about Tokyo? Um... I if you want to eat sushi 24 hours a day. Well, noodles. Noodles. Cuisines. Or noodles. Yeah, ramen. Raw fish. Raw fish ramen. is always, you know, cheap in Tokyo. But, raw um, fish and ramen. You know, I've never been in a McDonald's in New York City in my life. I've never actually been in a McDonald's in New York City. I've been to McDonald's Come when I'm on the highway in Indiana. There's no yeah, choice. You know, if I have no choice. I'm on the highway. Why would I? Why would yeah. I? I mean, yeah, my whole attitude so is other. I live in New York City in Manhattan and I pay a high premium to do so I, I pay a lot of rent i work very hard i scrap you know you know every every moment you know it's a hustle to live in you know a relatively small apartment and part of the perquisite that i get for all of this is i should never ever have to experience a bad piece of pizza that's okay, right. that's, that's part right. of the trip. That's why yes. I do this because I don't have to eat crap food because I live in New ever. York City. Yeah. Ever, 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 ever. And no and matter what my tastes run to, like today I feel like eating Vietnamese for lunch, or maybe I want to eat Cuban, or maybe I want to Cubano. Yeah, exactly. All of those things are available. In the, city. the top three slices, even if they well, close. Sal and Carmine's. Uh, a one of my slice. Top. Um, Joe's on Bleecker. But they, let's good. not buy the slice though. So now you yes, it is. Joe's on Bleecker. Yeah, Joe's. Oh, Joe's, right, right, Joe's. As opposed John's. to John's. Right, Joe's is great, right, as opposed to John's. I like, Joe's on Bleecker is good, I like Joe's. I like um, 121st and 1st Avenue, Patsy's, the original. Mm-hmm. I don't know that one. Yep. You Haven't can been eat there. like 30 of those. Really? And then my favorite, this is a defunct one, it was a raise on 72nd and Columbus. Oh, I love their well, sauce. Well, really, did they make I, their own crust? I doubt it. That's the it's benchmark this- to me, because Sal and Carmine's on 103rd Street oh. and Broadway... They still make in their own crust, and they Damn. put a lot of salt in it. It's really good. This everything else is store bought, including you know it's like the basic plastic cheese mm-hmm. and everything, but the salty thin crust really thin. crisp. Is it uh, awesome. cornmeal? Not cornmeal. No, they'd have a regular. So deck top oven. three. Now well, I'll tell you when I was uh, coming up, punk rocker in the East Village, the um, debate was always between St. Mark's Pizza, which is no longer there, unfortunately, uh, and the other stupid and, one. And stayed. Strom- well, and Stromboli's. But I like Stromboli's, but the sauce is a little bit sweeter. But Stromboli's is good. I like but the I like, pizza at the one that closed better. I like I like St. Mark's pizza. I was very loyal. I like the um, the Sicilian slice that came with the onions. You didn't have to, you know, that was sort of the way they made it. The onions were under the mm-hmm. cheese. Nice. And that was good. I like that. Yeah. Of course, uh, Ray's, which I always consider like the original Ray's or famous Ray's on 13th Street and 6th Avenue. Exactly. Yes. That's the original. Um, I think it's And that was like the big, Still you know, there. mass pie. I like uh, Mariella's on 3rd Avenue. And um, was it about 16th Street by Joe Jr.'s, you know, the coffee shop, oh, yeah. which is also a great coffee shop. Oh, you know, a great that's coffee a big, thick, shop. sloppy, slabby kind of, you know, cheese everywhere. I know that place. It's not, a, it's not a thin crust. It's, yeah. a, it's a big mess, and it's wonderful. Yeah. What's yeah. that diner? I mean, up I mean, a whole pie probably weighs about twenty five pounds. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yes. What's the diner up the block from you? It's on Third Avenue and like Twenty Eighth Street. It's real old school. It's like a deli almost. On Third Avenue, Twenty Eighth Street. That's yeah, exactly thirtieth, thirty. Uh, There's um, uh, the moonlight. 
uh, the Moonlight. Um, it's almost you're like right near Vatan, though. One of my favorite. Uh, well, Vatan's Vatan's. Vatan's that's like the Disneyland. Yeah, I love that place. Yeah, yeah. You know, they have chandelier colored chandeliers. I like them. Galaxies were old school on Second Avenue, about Thirty Fifth Street. I can't believe where where it's like one of these old, you know, really Greek diners that sort of have like outer space motifs, you know, called Cosmos or Galaxy. This one. Do you know that it's like a New Orleans place? It's two steps down on Third Avenue. Where is that? You go under. It has all these neon signs on it. Third Avenue, east side of the street, you west side me, of the street. You got me where? Third it's Avenue Cajun and 30s. Now? That used to be Mamoun's, a no, then Lebanese one block place. South is a very famous old place. It's been around since the 20s. And it's like, you know, huge cups of coffee. Nolo Conosco. Oh, man. It'll come to me. Okay. Sorry. That's yeah. Cool. Listen, to, yeah. listen to the polyglot Katie speaking Spanish now. Yeah. I took two Spanish? months. Of, well, I've been working on it. I took a few months of Spanish instruction this fall. That's good. We can do the show in Spanish. Yeah, sure. Sí. Por que no? Por que no? <laughs> Claro que sí. Okay. Vámonos. Okay. Vamos a la playa. Hey, no más. Bueno. No tengo su <laughs> No tengo su What is it? My father used to say, don't let your milk get hot. <laughs> no tengo su leche caliente. I mean, Drew, this pizza's gotten a lot better in, in New York City over the years. You know oh, I yeah. Mean? I mean, it's just, just every, everywhere there's been good pizza well, now. Well, we used to have used Pizza to, to Town to tr- on 110th Street, which or 116th, which was awesome. For Columbia students, remember Pizza Town? Uh, no, but... but um, oh, that was when fabulous. I, when I was in Made Up of Columbia, uh, La Rosita... Was was the place to oh, go? Oh, they just went down they went, like they went two years ago. Yeah, that yeah. was the place to get your rice and beans. That was Sunday tragic. Morning. That Sardis. was great. I know Batito. Uh, yeah, you know, like a Absolutely. papaya Batito. I mean, that was great. Was they were time. very nice folk too. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was good. Yeah. Um, I, I like this. Is that Jerusalem falafel still open? I've yeah. Been up there, I love that place. Yeah, it's That's my favorite falafel. It's uh, yeah, Jerusalem is there, but also there's um, uh, Amir's, which is the one you're thinking of. That's right up there. Same personnel. It's like all the guys who were teenagers when we were kids, <laughs> and now they're like in their middle forties, and they were fed. They there, right? Those guys, they wear fezes while they're like... No, anymore. they're Lebanese, those guys. Yeah. yeah, last time I was up in Jerusalem, the guys were all wearing fezes, which I think is very important. Jerusalem is on 105th Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Amir's is up a little higher, up up 114. Too often. Yeah. Sarge's. Well, you'll have to come over. Sarge's. Sarge's Deli. Yeah. Sarge's been around for a while. Um, Isn't that the, amazing the way the brain works? He throws you the letter. Yeah. And it says it starts with this letter. How does the brain operate that it, it throws you the letter but not the word? Definitely, you know? we'll definitely, have to get a, to- a definitely a topic for another show. Yeah, How the say, brain works. We'll have to get a neurologist. Uh, by, uh, yeah. <laughs> Patrick explains the brain. <laughs> you know, Jack, very look it up. Uh, Jack, how does the you know, brain we're, we're, work? We're, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> He's looking it up. You know, you know, over where I live, Third Avenue you. is now the new home of the Second Avenue Deli. I know. How has it lost thir- anything? Doid, doid, and doid. Well, it's lost Second Avenue, for one. Um, and it and lost it, the it owner, so, Leibovitz. Which is a tragic, horrible, horrible, sad story. He it's got still, shot it's right a, there. In a, 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 a burglary. And no it's way. And a real piece of shit burglary. He was murdered on the steps of his restaurant. It's an unsolved murder. It's still an unsolved murder. Wow. Really, really tragic and, and sad. Was he a nice guy? Um from all, I didn't know him personally, but he was you know, a neighborhood fixture. Yeah. And, you know, I love the 2nd Avenue Deli over there. Um, I would have rated that the best hot dog in New York City until they moved. It was my favorite deli just also for pastrami and stuff. Cats is, I never, I always liked 2nd and the matzo ball soup. Well, the problem with cats is, I mean, the pastrami cats is, is pretty pretty badass. Yeah. And, the, and the hot dogs are great, too. You got to yeah. get one that's been on the grill for a while. But my problem with cats is, is you know, I mean, it's kind of sprawling and noisy and maybe a little bit dirty, which is okay, you know, because it's fun. But... 
Um, I think it should be at least kosher style. I don't need it to be you know kosher. Um, but they every time I see some talk. kid going in there and saying, "Yo, give me you know corned beef with Swiss cheese and, and mayonnaise," there shouldn't be any cheese or mayonnaise in that place. To me, that's just wrong. I hear really. Oh but, my god! I hear someone say, "Give me pastrami and American cheese." It's like being punched in the stomach. That is you know, that's just wrong. That's yeah. not how we do things here. Yeah, no, you know? it's true. Some so, things need to remain not, pure. I agree. You know, with I mean, the co- second half of deli is always kosher. You can't even get milk in your coffee. Would you? What would there. you do if someone tried to put ketchup in a knish? Ketchup and a would just go crazy. Oh, yeah, I'm anti. Ooh, that would you hurt know? me. Yeah, it's, uh, that would hurt me. <laughs> you know, but I'll tell you the thirty, the, the new Second Avenue Deli. It's so freaking expensive. It's like cookie expensive. I mean, it was never you know free. That you know. At Second wow. Avenue and Tenth Street, um, uh, a friend of mine, Josh, who's the proprietor of um, Eisenberg Sandwich Shop on Fifth Avenue, one of the great coffee shops, with great lunch counters in New York, the oldest lunch counter in New York. Is that he, like a chock full of nuts kind of place? Um, that's where you want to get your chocolate egg cream. Uh, he has great pastrami there. You know, he's a guy that you should, we should have on the it? show because he talks about. We he, should. He is a posturemizer, his own personal posturemizer. Um, I didn't know that posturemize was a verb until um, me Josh either. What does it mean? What does that mean? He's the man who cures the meat, um, oh. and he. He doesn't make his own pastrami. He doesn't smoke or cure his own meat. But he has um, one guy, his vendor, who only makes enough for a couple restaurants. Right. And, um, you know, like the bigger places, obviously, will, will cure their own uh, pastrami. And that's who he gets it from, just one supplier. And it's fantastic. You know, and Where like, is it, Eisenberg? Eisenberg's on Fifth Avenue. And, uh, on. It's on Fifth be Avenue fun. between 22nd and 23rd. It is the oldest lunch counter in New York City. Really? Because um, there used to get be a whole Ricky culture there. There, of, uh, there was Lord and Taylor that had a restaurant on the fourth floor. And we still have that. Oh, really? Yeah. But anyway, there was a lot more people eating good food, kind of chock full of nuts. Was that all low, curvy counter? Yeah, I love yes. chock full well, of nuts. Well, there was one up at, at Columbia when I was a kid, way we back when. go there yeah. and drink coffee all the time. That was like a real, that was definitely a cultural center. It almost but, seems like they were probably buying food from the same places horrible places are now. It's just the food got so much well, worse. Damn, I wouldn't eat anything in a chock full of nuts. I mean, stick to the coffee there. But what maybe, about the hamburger? Maybe Grilled a cheese, sinker. Man. Sure, okay. I'll give you the I'll give you the grilled, grilled cheese, cheese and American, American uh, craft single on white bread. You yeah, know? Sure, on the not? griddle with no, bloody no, haven't grease. you heard? Um, Ann Saxelby is starting a whole uh, Sullivan County cheese American cheese thing. It'll be a Gouda that will replace the craft single in New York City. I haven't heard this. This is great news. Yeah, so I mean, you know, we got she's. I don't know, this is a really this interesting. Uh, it's only well, we seven thousand it pounds. Yeah. It's only seven thousand pounds a week. Well, she should That's easily nothing. be able to find institutional you know the great aunt, interested in that. But also the great untapped market for something like that the bodegas there yeah. you know people from uh you know pacific island or you know down south a little bit they cook a lot they love fruits vegetables and fruits yeah. they would love to have a local section well but if, i mean you seven thousand pounds of cheese you sell it into the new york city public school system boom yeah, done as if well, it's only eight dollars no, a they pound. Would do she's it. not trying to okay. make a great cheese. She's trying to do something that can a cheese that everybody well, can use. That's right. Well, this country doesn't need as great cheese. Well, this country needs as more good cheese. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, did I no, tell you the happy true. news I know about you're laughing, But no. it's true. We don't need another thirty dollar a pound. Let that to the farmstead people. And to yeah, exactly. The, we're talking about to an the cheese everyday connoisseur. cheese. Yeah. But back to the Second Avenue Deli on Third Avenue, Thirty Third Street. <laughs> and when it first opened, and my friend uh, Josh Meisenberg went up there, he told me the story because it, it is crazy expensive, and he. He was in line, and the guy behind him was complaining. He goes, I can't believe the prices in this place. And he turned around, and it was Tony Bennett. Huh? Oh, my God. <laughs> so if Tony Bennett's like, you know, whining that's too expensive, beware. Yeah. You know, caveat emptor, buyer, beware. Um, it is it is good. It's a little cramped up there. I do like it. Um, it is still 24 Favorite hours. Favorite deli? Very good pickles. Favorite um, deli? The, pick, the pickles, pickles are good. The pastrami, yeah. it's a little lean yeah. for my taste. You know, the pastrami up there. It's very tasty, but it's a little lean for my taste. Favorite deli? Uh, Jewish deli? 
I mean, it is Second yeah. Avenue still. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I am fond of Katz's, except for like what I just said. But usually, when I'm in there, I'm like pretty pretty shit faced anyway. Well, it's a so. barn of a place. I, I never. It's feel not open sort of that late anymore. It's, it's fun. I mean, Katz's yeah. is fun. Yeah. Sometimes I like to get a hot dog on the fly there. Oh. Um, but the pastrami is really good at Katz's. I mean, it's you know, okay. so it's got enough fat. Did it's, you grow up as a gastronome? I mean, what were you eating growing up most of the time? Well, my my mother is a completely terrible cook, and uh, this dysfunctional Jewish family um, that doesn't understand the concept of a family dinner or why it's important to eat. So, I mean, my mom's specialty, you know, was probably like shake and bake chicken. You know, as a friend of mine yesterday, I was like, oh, that was the 70s. Eh, you know what? I'm not accepting that excuse. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm just not. I mean, the woman did not know how to cook and she didn't understand the value of sitting down and putting mm-hmm. a good meal on the table. Um, but What about genetically? I'm, I'm an eater, you know? I'm genetically. A, I'm an like, eating what are and you drinking boy. Predisposed to life. Well, now my grandmother knew her way around the kitchen. Yeah. Now, my grandmother could twirl a kugel you know, they'll knock your socks off. Her your matzo balls were fabulous. That you know, mm-hmm. they you know lighter than air. Uh, she made a potato kugel that was pretty badass too. Mm-hmm. Kugel um, being a salad, like a noodle pudding. It's like a kugel. pudding, but um, and you can have a sweet noodle it pudding. It can be uh, like a brick. I gotta tell you, it's a <laughs> potato Yiddish kugel food. can be really. Have Hard you been to Sammy's to Romanian Steakhouse? I, I mean, it's a there. heavy cuisine because yes. they were cold where they lived. They needed calories. Well, and their fat was all it was all chicken fat. Mm-hmm. So well, that's the nice thing about Sammy is you go there and they'll put the schmaltz right in the oh, chop yeah. liver right in front of you. Yeah, yeah, and it's on the table there for it's you to on the pour table on for to you anything. To just pour on, yes. Wow, Roberta's looks very, very. Where are full. all these people going? These are all like these douchebag Manhattanites. I've been hearing so much about. Oh, they're going to the them. tent. That's so not true. You know, God, I'm still outraged by, by the story. I just don't like these platitudes launched by you know some 23 year old. Who's the writer? You know, uh, trustafarian. Um, uh, <laughs> you, you know, you know, in, in Williamsburg because like you know they're living next to the uh, L stop on Bedford. And all of a sudden, you know, people you they're know, hipper more, than you now. Know, you know, you know. Things change, and um, I find that the people who protest change the most are the people who've affected at least. You know, mm, interesting. You know, uh, I mean, it's changed. You know, when I was coming up and I wanted to move to New York City, the idea was to move in a loft into Soho or to move into Greenwich Village, and of course, that changed. It was no longer possible. And you know, I mean, you know, who would want to live at uh, uh, you know Bleecker and McDougal now? You know, yeah, or, right? or, or, like imagine living, or, or imagine living, you know, like on West Broadway and, you know, Broom Street or something. Yeah. You know, I mean, that loft is now like, you know, worth 80 bazillion dollars and it's not, yeah. you know, you're not going there to relive uh, the factory and, you know, move into, right. you know, an old song factory and that'd be your art space. There's nobody so, cool there. So it makes sense. So it expands <laughs> outwards and people come to Brooklyn and, you know, old neighborhoods become uh, reinvigorated with young people and artists and the artists stretch out. Here we are in Bushwick, uh, Roberta's Restaurant, which was what, an auto body shop, right? Yeah, that's my um, understanding. And, you know, walking down the street, I passed two art galleries and uh, somebody was uh, rehearsing their, cement ba- factory. Their, their, their band. And of course, yeah, a lot of uh, low factories, warehouses. It's a lot of industrial stuff around here. You know, I mean, this yeah. neighborhood was burned down in 1977, more or less. Yeah, you know, the blackout. Right. I mean, this that's was right. this was like ground zero for, for, for riots, riots yeah. you know, and looting. Absolutely. Hmm. But, you know, I do find that Manhattan has uh, sadly undergone its change. Oh, my God, it's horrible. I'll be, I'll be the first time. <laughs> you know, I concur that it is like a petri you dish know. for douchebags. I agree. It is. But and I'm it's not just, part of the problem, Katie. No, I'm not a problem. <laughs> yeah, you didn't ask me. I, you know, nobody asked me about moving, uh, you know, 15 Dwayne Reeds into my neighborhood. You know it's what like I mean? Dwayne like Dwayne Reed City. It's oh, gross. I mean, and the and building, like, across the street, I used to have the Olympia movie theater, right? Oh, the Olympia was so great. On 107th yeah. Street. The Olympia was fabulous. You could smoke dope in the theater. It was wonderful. Bring in any beverages you want, eat, drink, have a party. It was fine. Guess what percentage of uh, slayings NYPD solved? 
What percent of slayings have they solved? That's a non sequitur. Talk- no, it's right. not. It's not. We're okay. talking about uh, Second Avenue Deli. Oh, okay. It's okay. Uh, how did you find that? T- <laughs> just that statistic in that <laughs> paper. Uh, how many? Fifteen percent. You are an optimist. Classic. Wow, fifteen percent is an optimistic number. Yeah. No, a pessimist. Murders? Pessimist. Oh, I was being sarcastic. I mean, the NY's pretty PD is pretty good at what they do. I think. I'd like to think. Listeners, call squad. in. You get a, a free Zagat guide. It depends on whether or not they're interested you... in the case. Really? Believe me. Well, no, we have a Zagat guide thing, which is going to start next some, week. Some Zagats. Yeah, it's a it's a partnership with Zagat. Right um, they're going to be a sponsor. Patrick, yeah, ha- Patrick, have... I spent hours getting this pronunciation right. Oh, how how do you pronounce it? The cat. That's right. Zagat rhymes, rhymes with, with the cat. cat. Zagats rhymes with cats. Zagat. All right, Zagat. that's a very important thing. <laughs> you notice, Jack? I Thank got you. that right Thank out of the gate. Yeah, I did notice. Fifty nine percent. They solve fifty nine percent. That's fifty nine percent of people get Zagat's pronunciation wrong. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I say that's more like eighty nine percent. Which senator uh, in New York State <laughs> is going under uh, scrutiny from Cuomo for funneling things from his nonprofit uh, monies from his nonprofit to his? Uh, I like how we somehow personal. got from uh, Chuck Schumer. No, he is. Uh, Senator Pedro, don't about state st- state senator. Oh, state senator, state senator. Pedro Espada. Oh, that to, guy, yeah. yeah. And he Albany claims, is a freaking he, mess, yeah, man. He claims he's like, getting nailed because of the the quote unquote coup last uh, summer or fall when when the Senate basically shut down for poor, like poor, six the poor, weeks. The poor governor. You know, I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. If you just gotten a cool pair of blind guy sunglasses at the beginning, <laughs> know, you know, when he got the gig, if someone just said, you know, hey, here's a pair of Ray Bans, yeah, dude, he it. would be like the best governor in the world. Well, not really, because he's really trying to sell out into the Marcellus Sun- Shale Fields uh, natural gas. <laughs> Sunglasses drug. would have made a difference. That's a problem. No, well, he's he's on the right side of things, right? He's on the wrong oh, side of things. He side. wants to do it. Oh, God, he is so silly. If he now well, it's a big financial market. boon to the state, darling. Uh, yeah, but they they need to be producing food on that. Successful I, I couldn't agree food with you projects more, equals no gas. This is drilling. this is short, quick, easy money to bail the state out of its you know budgetary problems. So, you know, he thinks he's going to be the greatest thing since sliced bread if he manages to ram that through before Sunglasses. they... Sunglasses. Ray Bans. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. That's all the guy needs. I mean, just look at any Ray Charles record from the 50s. And there's your answer to, you know, to James Patterson's so all true. problems. So true. Absolutely. Yeah, it would certainly rehabilitate... I know you're all thinking it. I'm just saying what you're thinking. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> so... What do you, what, why are we combing the paper yeah, here well, for material? You know, Pat, you know what's Patrick interesting? just discovered the New York Post. Yeah. He's like, yeah, I love it. You know I never, I like, he's like a want. monkey with a bright red rubber ball. Yeah. <laughs> I, work at, I work at home and it's going to end. I mean, we're about to move into another office. But, you know, I've always, I've never commuted. I haven't commuted in years. So I, I missed this. I mean, page six. Yeah. I remembered it as page five. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I love about having you on, though, Mike, is we always have like a little love fest about New York. Yeah. You know, it's like it's always a love fest. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, I mean, of course, the love New York got hated a little bit. But it's so true about the Dwayne Reeves taking over my neighborhood. Yeah. um, That really sucks. The crime that my neighborhood not turning gay. Ugh, that was that's so painful. disappointing. It yeah, really, it's really, that's really too bad. Was. One thing about well, New York. I feel the same way. Um, how many baseball teams have old timers games? No idea. Uh, not all of them? None. Only the Yankees. Only the Yankees. They do it every year. I think that's... You uh, just said none and then only the Yankees. Well, I say other than the (laughs) Yankees. One. I should have said one. Okay, yeah. All right. One. One one of those things. What's the difference? (laughs) 
zero one. Okay, Pat. No, you no. Just, you just enjoy your New York Post and uh. Yeah, we'll keep talking about I, I, Second Avenue I, I, Deli. I report back. I, I like these diner stories. I like talking about the diners. Well, the old okay. diners were good. We used to go to the, uh, the Cozy Soup and Burger and Broadway and Eighth Street was a big fave. Yeah. That's um before I was a uh, uh, inmate at Columbia. I did a little time at NYU and that's where we always God. went. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've dropped out of some of the finest, Katie. <laughs> 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 that explains um, your excellent education. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, it does. But uh, yeah, you know what? Uh, the time you don't spend in college when you actually get a learn pizza stuff. burger. Yeah, is that is that like an, an archaic? Well, do you remember thing? Happy Burger? Happy. Burger. There used to be Happy Burgers all over the Upper West Side. So surely you remember what? I don't remember. There was one on 110th Street, Happy and there was burger. one on uh, like 93rd. Yeah, they were great. I don't remember the Happy? Oh burger. man, and they would they would they had a red light. Uh, light with a red gel which they would project onto the grill so that the meat would look really red and great instead of looking like you know whatever like, like, like red gray yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I got the worst case of food poisoning I've ever had from a happy, happy burger happy burger but, was not yeah, happy it, well, it wasn't happy that time but it didn't hmm. stop me from going back again and again I mean because really the burgers were great and they had a grill they had a gas fired grill and they were delicious what were the first good restaurants on the Upper West Side like early on 70s 80s like places like a bistro brasserie like Cafe Luxembourg, something yeah, like that. I'd say that was it. Yeah, because they really didn't start happening until. Um, let's see, I'm trying to think. Uh, restaurant two 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 went in on eighty uh, sixth Street. Okay, that was that was an early and good restaurant. That was in the uh, let's say early nineties, probably. Where else? And, what were uh, the other pre predecessors? Well, that's because your neighborhood's full. Well, of there like- was you know Cafe des Artistes has always been there. I mean those. Yeah, I mean those sort of iconic restaurants there was uh the, the, the o'neill's uh, o'neill's right? saloon and, and then there was uh, the ginger man was really famous right that's sort of lincoln area, center right? yeah mm-hmm. up i mean above 86th street forget it man there, there was not because it's a bunch of communists oh, butler, up there. the terrace the Nobody terrace in the butler building for columbia like that was really that was like the ne plus ultra white tablecloth dining you know like four stars and it was you know pretty good french food yeah really good very expensive hmm, really very fancy yeah well, cafe des artistes was very expensive back then too right you know i started going to the cafe des artistes when i was quite a young girl partly because i just mm-hmm. thought it was i couldn't get over the romance so of it i always sat at the bar so you could have like a little something at the bar and they always had hard-boiled eggs at the bar so if you were <laughs> If you were on a budget, as I always was, yeah, you could have a you know a beer or a glass of wine, eat a couple of hard boiled mm-hmm. eggs, and have a salad or something. And was boom, tavern, you were done. It was tavern on the Green ever good? I never, I've ne- I never uh, ate there. I, I think it was good for a while. Yeah. I yeah. think it was uh, genuinely had a really good reputation for yeah. a while. It sort of came and went, right? Depending on who was in the kitchen who was the and, chef, and yeah. the management, had changed. Yeah, a few times they had over lots the and lots of union problems there and stuff. Yeah. And Rainbow Room. That's not the Upper West Side. But still. The Rainbow Room. That was another was, one. Was it was never still on the West Side. Yeah, it was. It's on the West Side of Fifth Avenue. Makes it the West and that's side. being revived. Actually, the Rainbow Room. Yeah. But um, yeah, no, there was. It was. I mean, the, people still say the West Side is is kind of a, a, a wasteland for really good food. I mean, there's Bill Telepan's restaurant now, but he's also Lincoln Center area. We have um, he's community food and juice now. Do you ever go there? No. I like that place. They I, buy the food a lot is heritage. actually very nice, but and it's um, very inexpensive for for yeah. Yeah. How good the stuff is. It is. And the food is really nice there. They had a terrible fire. They were closed for know. like a year and a half or something. Yeah. And then they came back up and yeah. uh, started buying again. So. so, and who else? Besides Telepan, there's Kefi, the uh, the Greek guy, who's opened up a really good Greek restaurant there. He has a couple Greek restaurants. There maybe. was also a place called Victor's on 68th and Yeah, Columbus. they moved way. They were fabulous. Victor's and that, was very famous. That right? moved to uh, like 58th Street over way over west. Um, and it's Mr. You know Victor Daddy is is deceased, but his daughter is running the restaurant. Their food is excellent. Carmine's really up there good. too, the pasta joint. Yeah, 
I wouldn't call that fine dining. Though, no, not saying. really. That's sort of family but style they pasta. Were the but, biggest, but they were the biggest. They were the first restaurant that did the family style portions. Huge family style Where you would like and, order, you know, uh, one plate and it would be enough to feed six people mm-hmm. and it was mad. Uh, my favorite restaurant, Westside, also just because it's on the left side of uh, Fifth Avenue. Uh, as a kid growing up, Trader Vic's. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, well, the, plaza, the plaza. plaza. Well, that's where you get like a cocktail for like eight people. Yeah. It comes in like a bedpan, basically. Yeah, that you and can take home. On, they set the, it on fire. The They're 12 straws. Yeah. Oh, man. I love that. Uh, Trader Vic's all was over. Great. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. We used to go to Trader Vic's. There was one in London, too, in the Hilton. Sure. I never knew, the, to this day, I can't remember from my early memories of childhood the layout of that restaurant because it was so such a weaving adventure for yes. a five-year-old. Well, the weaving adventure because you had like Dr. Fogg's Wild Ride followed by like, <laughs> you know, you know, by the, the mega zombie which had like 14 kinds of rum in it, you know. That was, the of, like, that was lethal cocktails. You know, yeah, absolutely. It, it was basically like, like like a date rape waiting to happen. Oh, you know? no question about <laughs> it. Like, and believe it was, me. Uh, you know, would not get away with that these days. My mom's favorite cocktail and I've been telling a lot of these sustainable butchers and stuff like that and the meat sides of restaurants to get in with the bartender because the bull shot my mom used to eat bull, drink bull shots all the time and they were delicious do you remember those bull shots i remember the name but i don't remember I what's that, in like it. a bouillon it's cube bouillon beef, yeah you know in and vodka, tomato and tomato i think yeah tomato juice and, uh consomme you know like beef broth and vodka. my mom still makes them they're very good that sounds good. That's a hangover breakfast. That sounds if ever like a hangover one. Yeah. cure. Yeah, I think that's pretty much what they were for. Sort of like what they used to call, not prairie oysters, but those drinks where it was a raw egg with uh, a splash of Worcestershire and, and something else, and that was like the your hangover special. cure. Now the egg yeah. is back. or I mean, it had always been there, but the uh, what do they call that drink that has the egg in it now? It's the... Uh, oh, a lot of drinks well, had eggs in it. a lot of the old-fashioned drinks had egg whites. Yeah, yeah whiskey sours. Pisco had, sours, yeah. Pisco. Oh, yeah. With the egg, well, you know, with egg whites, where I stand yeah. on the hangover thing, it's the beer in the shower. I'm very loyal to this, not just as a hangover nostrum, <laughs> but as a lifestyle participant. And um, <laughs> if you recall, when we were uh, doing the 2010 decade wrap-up show, yes, um, the numbers for the last decade were good. It was 32 cases of beer. I had conservatively estimated that I drank in the shower. Wow. Um, on land, you know. That's it, really, that's, that's, it, it's, that's, it's a, it's a good number. It's really impressive. It's a, but it's very conservative. 32 cases, 24 beers to a case. Yeah, so yes, that's right. I was based on a 1.5 beer per week average, which is low, actually. I'm trying to be a little bit more aggressive this year. <laughs> <laughs> You should yeah. get, I want to see those numbers come up. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you should broadcast. We should get waterproof equipment, and you can broadcast your own HR. I would love to broadcast from the shower. shower. I would love it. Yeah, we've talked beer. about that. I, I would love to broadcast. Jack, we could do that, right? Peter Kaminsky so talked about doing one in a bathtub. You know, bubble bath. He has his guests come in. Yeah, and yeah. Sit there. yeah. I think it's a great idea. I love you it. know, real you know, life. You know, and, uh, it's like they have reality shows on TV. Why can't we have this right. in the Ladies radio? Ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages, people yes. at sea, direct from Mike Edison's shower. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I just want to remind you, kids, in the shower, it's cans only, please. Safety first. Yes, yeah, safety absolutely. First. That's right. Absolutely. Oh, you know what I learned the other night from our own uh, HRN Sam Merritt, who does the beer sessions with Jimmy Carboni. What a great show that is! I know they're great, and that's Tuesdays, folks, at five o'clock. Tuesdays you can at five. Anytime. And they are just—they're just delightful people. Beer and, sessions, and it's the beer sessions. Well, anyway, Sam was kind enough to do a beer session for my women's culinary group, oh. and um, we did it at Jimmy's forty-three. He's got they, great energy, Sam. Doesn't Sam he? Sam is adorable. He gets I the love best him. Out of people. Well, both he and Jimmy are—I'm a huge, huge fan. Jimmy, but too. anyway. What I learned was is that beer in cans is actually better for the beer because the um, cans, is since they don't let any light in, mm-hmm. um, 
the beer stays more stable, the flavor of especially the craft beers, and then more and more craft brewers are going into I believe that. putting like their beer the into cans instead of equivalent. You yeah, know, well, no one's bringing version. glass kegs to the bar, right? Yeah, right. Well, you're bringing your growler. I don't like eating certain foods off spoons because I feel the more interaction with the metal like certain hurts the, certain foods. You know, if you're in, in Spain, up so um, I buy into that in, in Galicia, up in the north of Spain, uh, where you go. Oh, I like to the way you said that. Galicia. <laughs> yeah. Just because my neighbor didn't turn queer doesn't mean I can't lisp. <laughs> but up in uh, Galicia, um, in the north near Portugal, Spain, where you'd go to a pulperia, right, yeah. where you get the pulpo, the octopus, and where the men would hang out all day eating pulpo. There's no metal spoons. Everything's on wooden plates yeah. and with wooden forks to eat the um, pulpo gallego. Uh, uh-huh. you know, which is with a boiled octopus with paprika, more or less. Right. Um, and drink uh, uh, wine, you know, the very thick... Uh, you know, dark wine and like those low cups. Yes, but yes. no metal spoons. You would not touch octopus with yeah. metal in Spain. Well, the reason the metal at, works, for you the, might as well. You might as well put Swiss cheese on your pastrami. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Well, the the metal in the beer can because we all said, but when am I have to taste it? And you hate to taste the metal. You have to pour it out of the of mm-hmm. the can, but the can is lined with a polymer, and that's mm-hmm. why you don't get the aluminum taste. So I'm Very just had to wrap that up. I mean, there, say, say what you will. I know it's um, beer snobs. Well, you're don't drinking. Agree with me, you're drinking but, a bud out but of the, a can. The people at Anheuser uh, Busch know what the hell they're doing. <laughs> 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 well, know. beer make craft brew, brewmasters will say it's a good beer. It just shouldn't. I mean, it's a fine, solid beer, but it just shouldn't be in every. It shouldn't be there at the expense hey, of the other ones. But it's still a absolutely good beer. like you know. Um, and I used to work I for a beer magazine. I actually disagree with that. I don't like it. I, I, some people it's don't. I like it. Very, I like it very You're much. So but slow. I, but, you know, but I have my Guinness <laughs> moments. Yeah, and of course. Um, I have my pills or tell moments, and I have. Uh, you Do you know, like that milk crazy, that crazy ginger beer? Have you tried Not that? Not as much as dark. I love that crazy that. ginger beer, Whoa. right? The juju ginger wow, beer. That's, Ooh, that's dark not on the menu stormy. today. That is that's super very good. dynamite. That ginger beer. Yeah. Dark is, and stormy is it, best it, it, cocktail I, I like for the dark summer. And stormy. Oh yeah, dark and stormy is one it's of my favorite. Okay, I'd like to see dark and stormy next time we we come in here. Okay, and some some Jamaican weed too. Let's get some. Let's we don't do to, that here, um, Mike. <laughs> let's go to the um, Tom Milan's place, pick up some beef blood if we can get it, and or, or beef stock or juice or well, whatever. I can make make some bull beef shots stock for and, us, yeah. uh, and dark and strong. I'll go with the I'll go with the consomme, but I don't know if I need any blood to drink some <laughs> yeah, blood. Gonna, my Sunday morning ration of blood. In Although vodka. Uh, I in just vodka. in the New York City Food Film Festival, which is coming up at the end of June, which you'll be hearing about ad nauseum from me here on this network. Um, but they do have one of the films is about these pork blood popsicles. Um, which they are making, I think, in Korea, which I just was like, whoa, what a concept, man. <laughs> but they actually do. They, you know, they boil it down, freeze it on a stick, and roll it in some sort of chopped thing. I'm like, wow. Why not? Hardcore. Pretty much anything on a popsicle well, stick like is going to be good. Blood yeah. sausage. I mean, what's the Anything on a popsicle stick is good. Yeah, there you go. It'll be like By a By the way, there are popsicle sticks at the Hester Street Market, which now goes, uh, Heritage Foods also has a barbecue stand. It's affiliated with the barbecue stand down there. Hester Street Market's it's on Hester and Essex, two blocks south of the Essex, of the Street, Essex Market. Street Market. Oh, cool. They have uh, delicious popsicles, also great clothes and stuff, lobster rolls, banh mi sandwiches, every Saturday and Sunday on sticks? through December. It's all on sticks? Everything on sticks, That's including the, best. the clothes. I love it. I love that. I they want a, call lobster, the a lobster hangers, roll on a though. stick? I want a lobster roll on a stick. Yeah, I think that sounds fantastic. That and sounds good. So, um, so maybe Jack should play some music and we should uh, focus this. <laughs> well, actually, it's already 2.11. It's 2.10. We have to Flying. go. Flying.
We yeah. have to go. Well, this it's was always, very unfocused, but fun. But fun. It's always a pleasure to have you Damn. on, Mike. Well, Sorry. We should do uh, We should broadcast Jack oh, and Natalie from our three bathrooms. I was just getting morning. ready to smoke a joint and talk about flying saucers. <laughs> uh, something to look forward to, I guess. That's right. That's well, I was reading show. in the, in the, in the uh, New York Post, which um, Patrick is still teething on. Um, there's, a, there's a small there's a small bit about uh, Stephen Hawking's saying, you know, they walk among us, basically. Yeah. Oh, they're here. They're here. You know, somebody else was saying that they're here and that we've been looking for them in all the wrong places. Yeah, they're here. I thought that was a very interesting. That was some, some you know, nasty. Are you about to transform? Uh, yeah, it could happen I think, anytime. I think, I think um, the Bedford Avenue L station, that's home base for them right there. <laughs> <laughs> that's why the tram was yeah, That's why they fear my Manhattan, my, the Manhattanites. That's right. Because I know. I hold secret <laughs> you know knowledge. Where it is. Yeah, that's I'm, right. I'm that's walking right. out of the station, I'm going to get whacked by some alien. Just don't get off at Bedford Street, man. You'll be fine. We have some great shows coming up. We have Joan Digussau is going yes. to be a guest in a future show. We have Marion yes. Nessel going to be a guest on a future show. Uh-huh. Um, we have next week, I think it's next week. No, May 9th, we have the Trifecta of Baking. We have Michael Lysconis, Rose Levy-Birnbaum, and uh, Gina De Palma are going to be talking about new flavors, new trends, new twists in the in the pastry industry. Um, and next week, uh, Jack, do we have that Excel document? I'm trying to think. Who we have something on. good next I week. I know. It's a great Remember show. Remember what it is. <laughs> Man. <laughs> We're just having too much fun. <laughs> um... But stay tuned. I mean, really, the, the, the lineups get better and better. Yeah, so. no, we're getting some, uh, you know, real yeah. guests. That well, that now that means- you've finally unleashed the Rolodex, Patrick. <laughs> you can have it, but it, unless you, it's literally called my Rolodex. Is it called a Rubrica Telefonica, which yeah. means a Rolodex, but like on the computer, it's old school. You need FileMaker Pro, but I'll no, ship no, it no, to no. you. No, no, no. I mean, I just mean like the fact that you like suddenly call up people like Peter Kaminsky and say, hey, do you mind coming? Oh, I we're having uh, Eric Asimov. I mean, uh, yeah, Eric Asimov. No, next week? No, oh, Eric Asimov hasn't confirmed yet, but uh, I mean, you know, I, uh, he'll he'll show up. Yeah, they all know. come eventually. Who do we have tomorrow? I guess we don't have that thing. Yeah, next week. I mean, next week. We'll, well be back next way week. Way to plug the show. Awesome. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, this is really professional. Okay. Um, but uh, let's just give a shout out to uh, White Oak Pastures, our sponsor for today. Uh, Roberta's. Thanks again for having the shipping containers in your backyard. It's awesome you. here. Yeah, and uh, thanks to our um, engineer Nat Weiner, our producer Jack Inslee. Thank you to our wonderful guest, Peter Kaminsky, and uh, especially to our, our our soul brother here, Mike Edison, for coming in and bailing us out one more time. I'll do, <laughs> I'll do anything for a pizza, Katie. <laughs> Patrick, have a great week. You guys, see you, guys. see you next time. Bye-bye.